Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at GetDeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. This is Rigor, and you're listening to The East Meets the West with my co-host, Patsy the Angry Nerd. What's happening, Pat? Oh, nothing. You know, it's a, it's a nice day out. It's been uh, really warm down here in Massachusetts, uh, you know, high 70s, mid 80s. So it, it seems like the weather's finally starting to warm up. It snowed a few weeks ago, so this is a nice change of pace. And uh, I'm excited to talk about these movies because uh, I enjoyed certain things about this. But obviously, we'll get into that. But right. there was one specific moment that I just, I really, I laughed so hard. And uh, <laughs> we will uh, we will definitely talk about that. So uh, I'm pumped. How are you doing, Roger? Regular. I'm doing good. Doing good. I've been happy about the weather, too. It's been in the 70s, almost 80 here. It's going to be in the 80s on Sunday. So finally, we hit the beach, which I usually start going to the beach on Mother's Day. So it's been extra cold later into this year, which was kind of annoying. But yeah. Um, I can see how that would be. Uh, which uh, which beach do you go to? Um, nowadays, we go to York Beach. My my go-to beach when I lived in Saugus was um, Salisbury, the, the state res, because mm. that was a really nice beach. But uh, it's just too far away from here now. We just go to York Beach, which is really nice. Yeah, I usually uh, I, I only go to the beach if I'm uh, down on the Cape. We'll go to uh, my wife, uh, Ashes, and I. Uh, Ash will, uh, we like to go... We take a bottle of wine and a couple of beach chairs, and we sit on the beach on uh, at Skakit Beach, and we just watch the uh, watch the sunset and oh, nice. drink a bottle of wine. That's awesome. I was never growing up. I was never a fan of the beaches on the Cape because they're always rocky and full of broken shells and stuff. That always irritated me. See, Nosset Beach is like that. Nosset Beach uh, is on the outer side of the arm, uh, like if you're looking at the the. 
the way the uh, Massachusetts is formed. Nosset yeah. is on the outer side, so it gets heavy waves. And like, there's if you, we we when we were kids, we'd go out and we'd ride the waves in, but you'd have to walk across like this little depression where there were just like you said, thousands and thousands of rocks and yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know shells and everything. And it's it was like it went down the length of the entire beach. So oh I mean, in reality, there's probably millions of these rocks, but. This is in a time before, like, water shoes were a thing. Because it's like, well, I could wear my sandals, but the way the tide is and how strong the, the current is, it's, I'd lose my shoes. Like, there's no way to keep yeah. them on. <laughs> so you'd have to try to walk across all these rocks just to ride the waves in. And right. it just, it wasn't always worth it. Skake it, oh on God. the other hand, is in between. It's on the opposite side. Okay. So it's still the ocean, but it's on the inside, so it's kind of like a nice, calm bay where it's just nice, relaxing waves coming in. Oh, cool. So you get to, uh, you know, you don't get to ride the waves, but you can go out and enjoy the water more. So yeah, it's yeah. like a 50-50 thing. You have to decide. But, you know, it's it's funny. I remember going to these beaches as a kid, and I go there now, and you can see the effects of erosion, like... There are buildings that are no longer there because they've fallen down the embankments. Oh my because god! Because the storms just have taken out some of these these beachfront properties. It's wow. It's crazy. I mean, it's been forty years. Yeah, yeah. But it's a significant difference. That's unbelievable. Wow. So um, yeah, I've been just had a jam packed couple of weeks. Just like you know, working on the podcast is a full time job. I'm usually up at like four or five in the morning and. I'm not done till like six at night. It's 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 crazy, but it's great. I love it. But you got like what six podcasts, including this one? I do. Let's see. On Mondays, I do. Um, I do the uh, the uh, indie creator spot or just creator spotlight now because we've been getting some bigger name guests, so they're not all independent. So we have creator spotlight that uh, records on Monday, and that's a live show. Uh, nice. I do. Uh, shark bites. Well, that's been on hiatus for a while because uh, I do a lot of podcasts. I do this one, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Um, I do the loudest sports show that comes out every Friday. I do uh, Throwdown Thursday that's come out every single Thursday since June twenty fourth, twenty fifteen. Wow. And uh, if I, I usually record that Wednesday night because that's when I have time. Uh, but if I record something on the weekends, I'll jump on the uh, Wednesday night show on the Dorkening Network. So oh, I yeah. was—I'll do anywhere from three to six podcasts a week. So it's—it's it's, you get pretty busy, and that's not counting if I do any guest spots somewhere. Right, right. <laughs> oh man. All right, so folks, um, I posted on the East Meets the West Facebook page a link to Terrence Hill's shop where you can purchase the newly created Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill action figures. And what'd you think of those, Patsy? I want them. Like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a I'm a guy that likes to collect uh, a lot of different things. Like, if you've ever seen uh, any of my my uh, live shows that I've done, you you'll see the uh, studio space behind me is just covered with random nerd stuff and a lot of sports memorabilia. You know, yeah, yeah. helmets and signed pucks and jerseys and things. You'll also see, uh, depending on where you look. Uh, my little video game, my arcade one-up system that I uh, I got. Well, technically, both my brothers and I got it for Christmas, but we've been uh, sharing it. We have joint custody. My little <laughs> Pac-Man game, and then on top of that, I, I found finally found a good place for my uh, 
Obi-Wan lightsaber. Ooh, that's cool. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a good amount of stuff that I uh, that I have. That's awesome. Yeah, these things are a little pricey. I know you and I kind of talked about it uh, offline, I mean, off mic, but um, they're like 39 lira, which turns out to be 48 bucks each. You know, and in my mind, I mean, I'm a collector too, but I'm thinking, I, I think that's a more reasonable price if you got them as a set. But I may break down and, and get them at some point because they're just so cool. Yeah, I like that. I like the fact that you can get both of them and they're, I'm not worried about them being overly articulate because, uh, articulated, I should say, like multiple points of articulation, like a lot of yeah. the Marvel and, and uh, DC figures, like the higher end ones have because i don't know if i'd even take them out of the box like i would right. just display yeah. them like i have a couple of uh simpsons figures uh when they had cer- certain guest stars i have a mark hamill and a weird al nice. um and those those guys stayed in the box like i have a lot of figures that are still in the box i haven't taken them out oh same here you know just because like i have a bub from day of the dead i have a joker action figure i have a nice. jonathan papelbon mcfarland toys you know like i have a bunch of these wow. things that are just all over the place and i don't want to take them out even though it would probably be way easier to display them right i keep them like the ones that you can that have the little hooks on them the plastic hooks i hang those on the wall yeah if i've I, got if i've got uh, a bunch of stuff hanging over my closet but like all those figures i just mentioned i Rattled them off because I just looked over to my left. I'm like, oh yeah, those are the guys that are all over the. Yeah, they're all on top there. <laughs> and of course, the Funko Pops, like those are easy to just stack. I got a whole bunch of. Um, I don't know if you've seen in Target, they have um, the Jason figures, and oh, I've, the NECA ones. Yeah, those are so good. I've got like parts th- uh, Jason Part Three, Five, and Six, and then also the one from Freddy vs. Jason, and I got those hung on the wall by my desk. Well, they have one, and uh, they have one coming out, and it's one that I need to get because it's McCready from The Thing. Oh, yes, I saw that. Oh. Yeah, that's so good. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up is just, we talked about this last week, and I hope people have had a chance to check out the uh, Slaps and Beans game, which I still can't stop laughing and loving that name. I did post the link in the show notes last episode, and basically, if you go to the link, they sell the game for PC for like 20 bucks. Which isn't too bad. I mean, we, of course, are, are no way affiliated with the company that made the game. But I just think that, you know, fans of these movies might want to check it out because it just looks hilarious. Yeah. it Yeah. Slaps and beans. It's just, it's, yeah. Because, uh, like, I, Terrence Hill even does, like, the little acrobatics and stuff. <laughs> which, you if you're going to be, if you're going to make it look exactly like them, you got to have their personalities and their, their little idiosyncrasies as well. Yeah. Which I didn't see. I was watching the little video on there, and I didn't see if there was one where Terrence—I mean, uh, Bud Spencer—gets, you know, uh, pig piled on by a bunch of guys, and then he throws them all in one shot. I didn't see if that was uh, something you could do in the game or not. I have to check that out. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine so. I mean, I think you would have to. I mean, right. just having them eat beans. I mean, even in the movie we watch today <laughs> for for today, like there's always beans, always <laughs> beans. And that's the thing with the with the Terrence Hill action figure. It comes with a, one of those large skillets for him to cook the beans in, <laughs> which is amazing. Yeah. 
That way he doesn't have to seal it from somebody else. Right, right. Obviously, it's action figure size skillet, but it's, you know, proportional to him. It's so cool. And did you see, by the way, that Terrence Hill's rep got back to us earlier today? Yes, yes. I was trying to think. I was like, yes. Yeah. He, they said he won't be available till the end of September because he's starting a new season of his TV show, Don Mateo, on June 1st. And that's a show where he plays a priest that solves crimes. So it sounds like the you know the father darling mystery. But uh, I'm looking forward to uh, getting getting back to them in September and booking them on the show. That's going to be great. Yeah, that would be that would be amazing. Yeah, I really had to kind of blitz them this morning. I emailed them on Facebook. I emailed them in English and Italian. I followed up on my email in both English and Italian. And so it's just trying to get guests on the show. You really just got to keep following up on some of these people. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, persistence is the key, I think, and yeah. I think that uh, I think that you know, given what we do on this show, um, I think that uh, I think that's a good idea, and I think people will uh, I think people will be happy. Absolutely, maybe. absolutely. Okay, so today we are covering another Shaw Brothers Venom's film called Flag of Iron from 1980. And the uh, Spaghetti Western, My Name is Nobody, from 1971, starring Terrence Hill, and this time Henry Fonda instead of Bud Spencer. But he doesn't play a Bud Spencer kind of guy. He's uh, he's his own, you know, Henry Fonda-ish kind of guy. <laughs> yeah.神鹰堂的巴铁骑门告究竟是他们死的人多大师兄弟有我去顶罪好了我去你了谁会买这么多杀手杀我刚才应该先问他是谁主使the story concerns the virtuous Iron Flag clan, which is headed by a respectable elderly leader who likes to keep the city clean. Lowe, played by Jared Paddle, uh, I mean Philip Kwok, and Ewan, Chang Sheng, are two of the top brothers, and we meet them as they bust a prostitution ring that's run by a rival gang, the Eagle Clan. The two free a captured girl who was bound for indentured prostitution service and take the head pimp to an eagle-run casino where they bet on his body parts until Chow, played by Lu Feng, shows up and tells him it's probably not a good idea to ruffle the feathers of the eagles, especially Don Henley, the co-lead vocalist and drummer. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a... That's, that's a... A pretty good uh, segue there. Don't ruffle the feathers of the eagle. Right. <laughs> Thank yes. you. I like that. The eagles are the Iron Flag's sworn enemies, and Lowe suspects a gang war is soon to erupt. After busting their operation, the Iron Flag leaders are shocked to receive an invitation to join the Eagle Clan for dinner to discuss peace between the gangs. They all suspect a trap, and Chow, the eldest member of the Iron Flag Clan, reveals that he's hired an assassin who goes by the name Spearman, or in the Chinese version, he's the white-robed rambler, Yian Zhu, played by Tian Sheng Lung, to protect them. Of course, it is a trap, and all hell breaks loose in the restaurant. Once again, they have an amazing meal that looks delicious, and they don't even touch it. The food goes flying right at the beginning. 
The unarmed Iron Flag leaders are surrounded by dozens of Eagle Clan fighters, but the Spearman arrives just in time to toss them small, spear-tipped weapons to fight with. But by the end of the fight, both the Iron Flag and Eagle Clan leaders are dead, and the remaining Eagle Clan fighters have escaped. It is unclear who killed the Iron Flag leader. Chow is elected to be the new Iron Flag leader. It's decided that Lo should take the blame for everything, as the police inform them that the Eagle Clan is pressing charges for the murder of their leader. I guess that they're at the point where they just they don't fight you, they just sue you. So yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, kind of like that scene in uh, in uh, suburban, suburban Commando. Commando. Yeah, <laughs> what are you nuts? We're gonna sue you. We're gonna get you for <laughs> mental anguish. Yeah, it's. That's all I could think of. Now, Lo agrees to leave town for about a year, only to come back when things settle down. Chow promises to send him money once he gets settled. Big surprise, the money never arrives, and Lo spends the next year working as an anonymous waiter in a restaurant where he doesn't even get paid. Things get worse when he's attacked out of the blue by a guy with a large axe. Director Chang Che really worked in some dark comedy here as Lo takes on the, the dude superhero style, fighting him while making sure no one notices so that his cover isn't blown. And then when he kills the guy, he drops the corpse into the restaurant's water well. So that was very sanitary indeed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that's the thing that I was like, um, mm, yeah. No. Right. Remember never to drink the water at that restaurant. Yeah. So Yuan shows up, reveals that he's been kicked out of the clan, and tells Lo that Chow has made the clan even more crooked than the Eagle Clan ever was. Prostitution, gambling, the works. Yuan also tells Lo that the dreaded Ten Killers, a group of mysterious assassins, are out for him, and they've been sent by Chow. No one knows who they are or what they look like, or even what weapons they use. Lo sends Yuan off to think things over. Here, we, we sort of get a film within the film as Lo takes on each of the ten killers as they surprise attack him individually. The fights here are rather quick, and each features flawless choreography, outrageous weapons, great use of the marvelous sets, and some good old-fashioned Chang Che bloodshed in a sequence similar to another Shaw movie, which is Sun Chung's 1978 film Avenging Eagle, in which a gang of colorful assassins pursue Ti Lung and Fu Shang. And we'll definitely cover that one in a future episode. Mm-hmm. The ten deadly killers of the underworld, as they are known, are the Axeman, the Fortune Teller, the Butcher, the Bookkeeper, the Young Kid, the Old Man with Three Youths, and, surprise, surprise, the White-Robed Spearman. These guys had some interesting weapons, so we'll talk about those when we discuss the film. After defeating the killers, Lo and Yuan head back to confront Chow, but instead of engaging in an immediate fight, they bide their time. Lo discovers that Chow is attempting to bribe him into rejoining the clan, making his underlings lose to Lo in high-stakes gambling matches. In the midst of this, the Spearman returns. He informs Lo that he's the man who killed the Iron Flag leader. He only did so because he was duped into it by the despicable Chow, who wanted to take control of both clans. The Spearman insists that he wouldn't have killed a good man, and so he wishes to join Lo and Yuan in their revenge. The film does kind of take its time getting to the said revenge, with Lo, Yuan, and the Spearman conspiring against Chow. At one point, Lo gets caught, and in a memorable scene, he's strung up in a leather cobweb that's been soaked in water. As it dries, it gets tighter, crushing him to death. Soaked in blood, Lo looks to be done for until he's saved by an Iron Flag member who's still virtuous. Finally, the stage is set for the final showdown as Lo, Yuan, and the Spearman, along with two other Iron Flag members who clearly can continue to fight even with five arrows in each of their torsos, take on Chow and his deadly flag. So, first impressions, Pat. Um, a lot of good you know, combat 
uh, more fun and interesting uh, weapons that we get to see. Yep. Especially we'll get to we'll get to the uh, the super special one that uh, got to be spring loaded. I'm I'm guessing. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, and of course, you know the the playful banter and and fun back and forth between you know the the venoms that we've come to come to expect from these movies right i i liked uh their different nicknames you know like iron tiger and and all that uh <sighs> this one was a lot of fun there were like we, we we talked about uh you know you you mentioned in the synopsis where the uh, uh the guy gets killed and and thrown into the well so you don't want to drink the water there but it was yeah. interesting how he was killed because he was stabbed in the stomach with a handful of chopsticks Right. And then they were driven through his his uh, stomach and out his back, so he looked a little bit uh, like a porcupine. Right. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was so good. So that was a lot of fun. Like the 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 different kills, the different uh, means of uh, d- dispatching your enemies, especially yeah. like the restaurant fight scenes where it's like, oh, I don't have a weapon. Let me break the legs off this table and Christ. let me ram these table legs into your body, even though they're not sharp in any way, shape or form. Right. A lot more of the uh, the fun acrobatics. Yep. Uh, a few times uh, a little exaggerated, but, right. you know, like the final fight where, you know, you got guys doing backflips over 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 the the swinging flags like that is impressive like and of course we have the the typical oh no i have this you know foreign object or blade like you know pierced through my body but i'm still going <laughs> to kick the shit out of a bunch of guys and you know we have the sudden abrupt ending like uh, yep. like we're used to uh, the very open-ended, like, what happens next? Who knows? We're done with this story. Right. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. I, I, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. But I will say there was the one moment that I literally just, I was laughing out loud at this. It was, I found it to be so funny where I forget who it was, but they were fighting an underling and they killed him with the flag and the guy like kind of jumped in the air. Oh, Yeah. And he had his arms and legs out like Chevy Chase on the cover of, you know, Christmas Vacation. Right. And he gets pinned to the wall. Yeah. It's like, okay, first of all, you have to be strong enough to drive this spear or this flag through a guy's body and then pin him to the wall with right. it. I think it was uh, Chiang Sheng who did that. Okay, yeah. I laughed my ass off. Yeah. I laughed my – I was like, all right. Like I'm used to like some ridiculous deaths. Like again, a man was killed with chopsticks. Right. Uh, I have an axe. Well, I have this tray of dirty dishes that I'm washing yeah. in the well. <laughs> you know, or the the guy in the restaurant who got stabbed with a broken dish. Uh, and yes, I was going to mention. He's like, yeah. What's you know? Tell me who you're working for. He's like, aha, no. And he like shoves it further into himself and then laughs and dies. Right. <laughs> It's so ridiculous. Killed by uh, crockery. <laughs> now, what did you think of the kid with the sword when he pulled the sword out of the giant scabbard that he had? Right, and it was a short sword. <laughs> I was like, what is this dagger? And all of a sudden, like, it's spring-loaded, and, like, this long-ass blade pops out of it. 
Right. I thought I thought it was interesting. I because he comes in, he's very unassuming. He's like cl- almost clumsy, and I think that was the whole his whole shtick was that he was young looking, and you know he he was clumsy, so nobody would would deem him as a threat. And then of course he you know he gets into the fight with Philip Quack and uh, and and he doesn't he doesn't last very long though. <laughs> no, like it wasn't even close. But um, yeah, I you know walking into this, I obviously had no idea what it was about, and I have to say, compared to last week's movie, which last week's movie was good, the two champions of Shaolin, I felt that it was sort of run of the mill because we didn't really have a whole heck of a lot to say about it. It was stuff we'd seen before. We there was only so much we could comment on the acrobatics and and the fight scenes and everything. But this one, I thought there was a lot more to it to talk about, and uh, it was just I found it much more engaging like i said even though the other one was good and i enjoyed that one i thought this one was even better yeah uh this one it had much more of a plot a lot more intrigue a lot more um like having characters return from the beginning like like hey what are you doing in the whorehouse we saved you yeah you saved me once right. but like they just went and got me again <laughs> it's like oh, oh shit sorry yeah. Like, we tried. You should have left town. Yeah. <laughs> the gambling scene was great. Like, ah, oh, we bet this guy's face. We bet his right. arm. We bet his head. <laughs> we bet his heart. Oh, oh yeah, that one was funny. Now, this film was also known as The Spearman of Death, obviously, which I, I think that's not a great, inaccurate title because he was sort of a, a side character. He wasn't the main character. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think um, Flag of Iron, which, by the way, we were talking about getting stabbed by the flags. I think, didn't they have spear tips on the end of them? Yes. Yeah. So I think that they made for, and oh, there you go, man, a, a cloth foo. I, I couldn't stop thinking about you right from the very beginning. I'm like, Pat loves when they fight with cloth or flags. <laughs> yeah, like, it's a lot of fun. Like, oh, yeah. It's it's so cool. It's, um, they, they do, like, just some awesome stuff. Like, like I said, you know, they, they had the, um, like, the backflips and the, you know, like, the just the acrobatics almost. Yeah. It, it's just, it's so cool. Especially Philip Kwok's acrobatics, which we don't really see a whole heck of a lot, a lot of no. times. But in this one, he did, like, ten backflips in a row in that end fight. Yeah, like, backflips, you know, dropping down, like, you know, like, landing awkwardly, but, like, not really landing awkwardly. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so cool. Now, what's interesting is um, Sun Chen and Lo Meng were not in this one, and um, you know I I felt Lo Meng would have made a good spearman instead of the other guy. Yeah, but this yeah, it's too bad because this is sort of where he starts to break away from the Shaw brothers. And uh, even though we have eight more films to cover, well, actually seven because we already covered Mass Avengers. We did that one out of order, but um, Lo Meng's only going to appear in The Rebel Intruders and The Ten Tigers of Quang Tung when we get to those. But don't forget, he's been in a lot of modern stuff, too, including John, John Woo's Hard Boiled from 1992, mm-hmm. and he's also in Ip Man 2, 3, and 4. Yep. And he's got a new movie coming out called Dragon Letters, so we'll try to cover some of those when we start to do our Outside the East Meets the West specials. Yeah, I always enjoy the... Uh like uh, loosely connected threads of different things that we like stuff that we cover. And then there's like these loosely connected things that are, you know, that might have the, the actors or the directors, you know, like I like that with, it's not quite a connected universe, right? But it's still, 
it's still the uh, you know the, the the same people. Oh yeah, yeah. And down the road too. I mean, I, I can't wait till we cover some of the Shaw Brothers horror movies. Some of them are really good, and they've even got you know dramas and romantic comedies and stuff that we'll get to eventually. When you know, like when I first started the show, my son was like. Oh, I thought you'd be done by now. And I'm like, no, there's like 600 Shaw Brothers movies and or 700 Shaw Brothers movies and 600 Spaghetti Westerns. I'm like, we're going to go forever on this thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> so speaking of the word Spearman, um, the version that you and I watched, Pat, I believe is, oh, it's uh, not that I believe it is the 114 minute uncut European version. And I'm pretty sure that most of the versions that uh, listeners will find when you go to your, you know, DVD or a secondhand DVD store is the 89-minute versions, which are craps. Because it's a shitty bootleg copy, which deletes major plot points, cuts off dialogue even when characters in the middle of a sentence, and it tones down the violence. Um, so ordinarily, what I've done in the last couple episodes is I would recommend listeners to purchase the DVD from ClassicKungFuMovies.com. Again, no affiliation with us. But their version is the 89-minute version, um, so don't get that one. However, I did find uh, the Far Superior version is available on Amazon. And it, it, when you're looking, listeners, when you're looking at the at the cover box of the, of the DVD, the top of it says Shaw Brothers DVD Collection, and some of them, the bottom says Enhanced Edition. And that is the full hour and 53-minute version that we watched. So just make sure you double-check that before you, you know, hit send on the order. And I, I think that one is was put out by Media Blasters Tokyo Shock. So I'll put the link for that in the show notes. Yeah, this I, I, I don't think I would have enjoyed... Uh, after seeing the the full version, I can't imagine what they could have cut out. You know, twenty five minutes, like what they could have cut out that would have, you know, either progressed the story quicker or made it better. Because like there was a lot of stuff that, while there were a couple of things, you know, maybe some of the conversations, you know, with uh, with everybody, but like there was there was a lot of good information and you know their plans and what they're going to do and right. I, don't know, I I think I think it's it's fine the way it is and I can't imagine what a 29 minute cut or tw- cutting 25 minutes would would do right right and not a lot of it there's really no no throwaway scenes or dialogues in my mind too it's like you know yeah okay like i said in the synopsis it does take a little bit for them to get to the to the final battle but it's it's good build up i really enjoyed that yeah i i uh yeah maybe a couple of conversations could be short but i can't see cutting maybe more than like five minutes, right? I think a lot of the violence was cut too for some for whatever reason. Who knows why? I mean, this movie's what you know, forty years old. <laughs> yeah. So uh, once again, directed by Chang Che and written by Ni Kuang. Um, one thing I wanted to point out because I kept seeing her name and I kept meaning to to look up look her up is the producer is Mona Fong and um, her name's actually Mona Fong Yat Wei, also known as Lady Shaw. And she was a Hong Kong film and television producer and production manager. She was born Lee Menglin in Shanghai. She achieved fame as one of the most popular nightclub singers and recording artists in Singapore and Hong Kong in the 50s, especially singing English covers of top hits of the time. Um, she did eventually marry the uh, media mogul Sir Run Run Shaw, who was running the studio at this point, and she became a deputy chairman, deputy chairman and general manager of Shaw Brothers Studio, and then moved on to Television Broadcasts Limited, TVB, which was a big company over there. Uh, Mona Fong produced over 100 films, the final one of which was called Drunken Monkey in 2002. 
in January of 2009 is when she was appointed general manager of TVB and she retired in 2012. She ended up in, uh, had been in the business for decades and she she collaborated, of course, with Run Run Shaw. And uh, in order to celebrate the um, British colony's handover back to mainland China, they flew to Vegas and got married in 97. Nice. And I think she was his second marriage. I believe his first wife may have passed away. So we'll talk about Run Run Shaw in a future episode to get into the Shaws themselves. But this movie is ranked as one of Hong Kong's top 10. I'm sorry. <laughs> Mona Fong is ranked as one of Hong Kong's top 10 richest women in the year 2000. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I can I can see why. Yeah. I mean, she's she's got her hands all over these movies, which is cool. So let's get into the cast for a little bit here. Of course, we've got Philip Kwok as the Iron Leopard Luo's Lo Shin. Lotion, lotion. <laughs> it was nice to see him back, and I thought he was definitely in top form. Oh yeah, he was great. Yeah, I like it when he's at the center of these films and not a peripheral character. I agree with you there. Then we got Chiang Sheng, who was Iron Monkey Yun Lang. I, as much as I enjoyed him in this film, I felt like he was sort of reduced to third tier again, um, and more of a sidekick. And he really only gets to show his comedic talents in the first few minutes. Um, but he he was the assistant director on this, so maybe he was more tied up with that. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah. Because I felt like, I mean, let me know if you agree with me or not, but I felt like Philip Kwok did actually more acrobatics more acrobatics in this than he did. Yeah. I mean, maybe he was dealing with an injury or something. Like, I know they have similar styles. I mean, he's, you know, right. Philip Kwok is generally not the one that's doing all the acrobatics, but, you know, maybe he was dealing with an injury or maybe he was, you know, uh, overly consumed with his uh, directing uh, responsibilities. Could be, yeah. Seems like they all tend to take a break every now and then. I mean, when you're producing these movies, they, God, how many do they put out in a year? You know what I mean? Like four? So they probably do have to take breaks at some point or, like you said, for injuries. Right. Because these guys are always doing all these crazy stunts and acrobatics and a lot of, like, what seems like a, a significant amount of wire work, especially with some of these, you know, big, huge leaps onto and off of things. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure somebody has been, you know, tweaked their back or twisted their knee or done right. something that might, you know, kind of inhibit them. And it's like, yeah. okay, I can do, you know, moves, you know, like this, but I'm not going to be able to, uh, you know, do backflips as much as I would like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then we've got Lu Feng, who was the Iron Tiger, Chao Feng. And, you know, he's the same rotten bastard as always. And he only he mm-hmm. only gets two fights in this film. That was kind of too bad also. Yeah, but it, it seems to be like if you're not one of the main Venom guys, then you're kind of going to be relegated to second, third banana when it comes to the fight scenes. Like, you'll get a cool fight scene and you'll probably get a memorable death, but, you know, they save, like, the big-time stuff, you know, for the Venoms because that's who everybody's there to see. And that's one good thing that could be said about, I mean, well, among many good things you can say about this film is that they didn't, while they're, they... You know, some of the criticisms I've read said that, oh, it didn't have enough action in it, which I thought it was, you know, balls to the wall from beginning to end. But they didn't sacrifice the story just so Lu Fang could have another couple fights in it. Right. You know, that's one I like. Uh, one thing I liked about it. Right. Everything made sense. Everything, everything worked out. I think the way it was supposed to. It didn't. It didn't seem forced. It didn't seem convoluted. 
which is something right. that I really like about these films. Like the action, while the plots tend to be very similar from film to film, they're still very enjoyable, even though you kind of know what's going to happen. Like they're kind of formulaic, but the charisma of the different uh, actors, the uniqueness of each fight scene, like you're basically every Shaw brothers film is going to be the same movie over and over again. Right. You know, one clan against another clan. This guy double crossed that guy. Somebody got killed. We need to avenge him. Now let's have a big fight scene. And occasionally they'll throw a woman into it. Right. But, you know, that's usually the way it goes. But it's how they get, you know, like they say, it's it's the, the, the journey, not the destination. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's definitely um, that was really um, just so much fun. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio. We've got Long Tian Sang, who was the white-robed spearman or rambler, Yan Shu. And he, his character, I felt, was definitely sort of like a similar to the man with no name kind of characters like we see in the Spaghetti Westerns. Because we don't really get too much about him. We, don't, we only know that he claims to be sort of an honest man because he clearly feels bad that he killed the leader of the Iron Flags. He's, a, uh, he, he's one of those, you know, guys that you would, like you mentioned, you know, like the man with no name or the, you know... The, um, the the protagonist that you would see in you know westerns, yeah. you know the the antihero. It's like oh I'm a I'm an assassin, but I only want to kill bad guys. You know like Dexter only kills you know right. other killers and you know like the Punisher or you know somebody like that. Like they're oh yeah you know they're bad guys, but it's not like they'll just run around killing indiscriminately. Like they're only going to kill other bad guys. Yeah yeah exactly. And Lung Tian was um, a Taiwanese actor who starred mostly in martial arts and action films. He appeared in a lot of Taiwanese productions, including one called Buffalo Swing. And uh, in 1974, Pan Lei recommended Lung to, Chan che, uh, to Chang Che, but Lung lost his chance due to mandatory conscription, which basically means he was drafted into the Chinese army. Mm-hmm. So then in 79, when Chang Che went to Taiwan to recruit new talents... Lung was available, and he brought him back with him to Hong Kong. 
Uh, Chang let Lung take up important roles in his famous works like Sword Stained with Royal Blood and The Brave Archer and His Mate. Lung also worked with other directors such as Taylor Wong in The Buddhist Palm. And in 1985, he left the Shaw Brothers and returned to Taiwan, and he's still making TV shows today. So nice, good on him. Yeah. And then uh, we'll run through the rest of the cast real quick here. We've got Chan Shen, who was the Eagle Hall chief Mi Ju Gao. We saw him before in Shaolin Daredevils, Shaolin Rescuers, and Heaven and Hell. Uh, Wang Lick, who sometimes goes by the name Wang Li, uh, he was Fierce Eagle Gao Dang, or Kao Tung. He's one of the second-tier Venoms. And then we had another second-tier Venom that we've seen a lot. Is the pointy-nosed guy named Yu Tai Ping. He played Flying Eagle Chen Chang, or Chin Chang, and uh, he's the one who ultimately saves Philip Kwok's character and realizes that, oh, crap, Chow uh, is really bad, and we need to, you know, he's going against what we were taught. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. Which, he didn't last very long, though. <laughs> no, he did not. But, you know, again, you know, we're talking about him, so he, you know, he had a significant role. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was cool to see his character do that. You don't, he's usually just sort of a dick in every movie, and I like the fact that he, he kind of realized the error of his ways. Then we've got, well, there's a, a lady named Lam Su Kwan. She was, she was another female character in this, which I, I vaguely remember, but she wasn't in many movies anyway. She had a very small part. Um, and then there's Wong Ching Ho, played Mr. Hu, and he also played the guy that owned the dye factory in Magnificent Ruffians, if you remember that's where Lo Meng worked. Yes, yes. Yeah. And then uh, Wang Han Chen was the casino manager, Zhang. Uh, Lam Fai Wong played the brothel manager, Liang. And he, he got his comeuppance, which I thought was good. Quan Fung played the deadly fortune teller. Wan Sung Lam was the iron abacus, or abacus, which we'll talk about when we get to that. Oh, geez. Yeah, that guy was, <laughs> that was a little nuts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chiang Cam was the killer butcher. Lao Fong Sai was the what they called here Naughty Kid. I got this from Hong Kong Movie Database. Naughty Kid Yang P- Yang Yi Pu, and Sui Chun Lin was the captive woman who ended up constantly getting captured again. Uh, this was her first movie. She'd been in a handful of films, quite a few TV shows in Hong Kong, and even recently in 2020. So she's still working as well. One thing about this movie, Flag of Iron, it's a remake, and it's actually Chang Che's remake of his own movie, sort of like the way uh, uh, John Ford remade, uh, was it El Dorado? He remade he remade that one. So Chang Che remade, I don't know how many of his films, but th- this particular one, it was called Duel of the Iron Fist with, that starred T. Lung and David Chiang. Um, but I, I guess that movie had a lot more dramatic and political aspects that took center stage, and in this one is more of the Venom style, where you've got these outrageous characters, complex fight choreography, and you know, as you pointed out, plenty of over-the-top sequences. So uh, it'd be interesting when we get to that one to compare it. Yeah, I mean, I like the uh, I like the uh, over-the-top sequences, and I will say uh, one of my favorite things, and I was trying to remember, you know, it, but it, it finally just came back to me. Did you think it was more or less appropriate for um, Chow to have a slight British accent. <laughs> I did notice that. Um, it didn't bother me because I felt like it kind of fit his character. But if you're going to do that, then they should all be British, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, oh, we all grew up in the exact same place and we're raised together, but I'm British. Right. <laughs> 
And it's like, well, I, I get it because he's the villain. Right. And, like, if you're going to have someone be a villain, like, you can't go wrong with a, a guy with a, a very slight British accent. Yeah. You know, with a little bit of baritone in the voice and, like, kind of not really speaking above a whisper, kind of like a Hannibal Lecter type, you know, intimidation voice. Obviously not as creepy as, as uh, Hannibal, but in the same vein. Yeah. But I really, I really liked that aspect to it. It's just like, yes, I'm the bad guy. And it's yeah, like, yeah. Oh, well, we know who's behind all the, uh, all the uh, trouble because <laughs> it's the creepy British Chinese man. Like, right. although if, you know, if they were doing it, if they were filming this in Hong Kong, that might make a little more sense. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, because you'd have a lot more British actors available. Especially at the time. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's funny, too, because, I mean, the sub, the dubbing was not the greatest in this. I've, I've read things where they've said the original subtitled version was better, which I did not watch. But, um, yeah, I, I didn't, I don't, I don't know if I liked Philip Kwok's voice. I just wish, and it's probably something to do with with contracts or availability, but I kind of wish they were able to keep the same voice actor for the same Chinese actor, at least from like, you know, 77 to 85 or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I get it, but at the same time, like, say you had a guy, you know, like we've we've, uh, mentioned this a couple of times in some of these films where the actor is... Just the voice is so wrong. Like you have this yeah. like high pitched voice that sounds like, you know, a, a kid who's, you know, on the cusp of being an adult, but still very pubescent coming out of like <laughs> Lomang. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> Again, another suburban commando reference, like the Undertaker's voice in that film. You're yes. a dead man, Ramsey. No wonder you guys <laughs> never talk. <laughs> like you know it's so it's so weird to see that and like hear his voice and it's like ah so imagine if that was the guy for 6 years worth of films and you had to deal oh, with that every time <laughs> you know maybe they just they kept trying and trying and it was like you know maybe they grabbed some theater students and were like all right you know we're going to have you dub over this movie you know, dialogue's not important, so right. You know, it's it's the action that we want you to pay attention to, and as long as you know you kind of get the gist of things, you know, it doesn't matter. So maybe they paid him like, oh, we'll give you a hundred bucks, you know, yeah, to read the script. And for a string of them, I'm going to say maybe like two or three of them that we covered, like for example, uh, Chang Shang's voice was the same voice actor. And that that I, I I couldn't tell you which movies, but that particular one I remember fit him really well. Yeah, well, maybe um, you know, there's you know, just like anything else, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why somebody would move on. I mean, ask Terrence Howard if he regrets his uh, his contract stance uh, in Iron Man. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, man. But, yeah, the, I mean, this movie was just, there were so many good things. I mean, the choreography, of course, as we mentioned, is just stand out, stand out. And the camera work, once again, was really good. I mean, it's swift, smooth, and a lot of wide shots where you can see everything going on. And that's, again, one of the things I think both you and I agree on that is one of the great things about these movies. Right. You don't need 800 cuts. Like, when you have two two actors 
who can really, you know, give you a great fight scene because they're trained. I mean, like, and that's the thing I don't understand about so many of these other films. Like, even when you have two really good martial artists, like, they'll still do a ton of cuts because they think that's what people want in an action film. But right. it's like, you have all these, these guys, you know, like Robert Downey Jr., like, just using the, the, the Marvel films as an example because they are always doing 900 cuts for a 30-second fight scene. Right. You're, you have these guys, you know, training and lifting weights. Like, you have Chris Hemsworth, you know, making sure he's super jacked and learning how to do all this stuff. Why can't you train him to, you know, throw a punch convincingly or take a punch <laughs> convincingly so you don't have to cut away every time someone throws a punch? Like, I'm throwing a punch. Now we're going to switch camera angles to show you from behind, then in front, and then show the reaction of the guy getting hit. And it's like, oh, my God. It's like, yeah, I know you don't want to show that it's the stunt double, but maybe, I don't know, teach these guys how to fight. Right. <laughs> like, it's the well, worst. That, and that's the thing, like, in this movie, too, is I think we've already mentioned the, the the choreography was so good. Like, especially in that end fight, there weren't a whole heck of a lot of cuts. I mean, you had to cut back and forth because there were different characters doing different things. But there's one sequence where it, the camera hung for quite a while. Yeah. And you just watch these guys go at it and flip after flip after flip, you know? Yeah, and it's great. Like, you know, you'll see the camera pan, you know, left to right uh, or up and down. Yeah. But generally, it's just a wide shot watching these guys fight. And can we just, talking about this final fight, you know, obviously the, uh, what's his name and, and the man in white are having their little duel, but they refuse to kill each other. Right. And then... uh Chow decides, you know what? I'm going to hurl my flag through this guy <laughs> and have it stick into a tree. Ugh. And then the man in white's like, oh, no, I just got like through and through. This thing went right through my body and into a tree. Well, time to fight some ninjas. And like <laughs> goes over and starts battling guys. It's like, wait, what? He, he did rip his shirt and tie it around his wound first. Oh, well, that's... <laughs> Let me put a tourniquet on the lower half of my body. <laughs> it's like, that's not how that works. Ugh. Oh, man. There were so many great little touches in this movie. You, you know, you mentioned the chopsticks and uh, Shying Chang throwing the spear and, uh, and launching the guy up against the wall, like about 10 feet up in the air. And pinning them um, there. Pinning him to the wall, yeah. But there was, did you notice the little touches that when, um, when the spearman's fighting the flag guys, he he's running towards one of the flag guys who's you know waving the flag around he throws his spear forward the one the, the short ones mm -hmm. he runs past the guy like through the flag and then he catches it on the other side and turns around and stabs him with it yeah you know just like real life yeah <laughs> it's like wow he's so fast he can run around the world and punch himself in the back of the head <laughs> It's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> you know, it reminds me of a comic panel I saw the other day. Um, I don't know, you may have seen it too. I forget what group it was in. But it was, uh, Superman was pissed off at this guy. So he like grabs a gun and he's like, earlier today you pointed a gun at a nine-year-old girl and she's going to remember that for the rest of her life. And Superman points the gun at the guy's face and then fires it, but catches the bullet. And he's like, and now you will too. And it's like, that's kind of what this is. It's like, I'm going to throw my spear and then catch it and kill you with it. It's like, right. no. 
And it happened so fast, so I, I had to rewind it. I'm like, wait a minute, did I just see what I think I saw? Well, it would have to happen fast, because, you know, if you throw it slow, you know, it's not going to go through anybody. Right. I mean, I would I would buy that if he threw it up in the air and then ran over to the guy, caught it, and stabbed him. That would be okay. But throwing it straight? Straight. It'd be like, there's a reason why quarterbacks don't throw themselves touchdown passes. Right. <laughs> You imagine that somebody just like launches the ball up in the air as high as they can and then just like runs underneath of it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to be running like 40, 50 miles an hour at the very least. <laughs> but I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and there was another cool little touch too when Lu Feng and Philip Kwok were going at it and they're both using the flag spears. Um, there's one point where they end up swapping spears. And I had to rewind that one as well. Yeah, there you get to see that a lot in some of these movies. Uh, guys will fight with uh, a couple of different weapons and then, you know, kind of battling. A, like, you know, you have t- two guys fighting two other guys and, like, they're kind of at a stalemate. And then they'll, like, kind of look at each other, giving give each other, like, a knowing look. And they'll, like, toss each other's weapons. It's like, haha, I was fighting with a spear. Now I'm fighting with nunchucks. And... You know, then they're able to overcome their opponent because their opponent wasn't there. We just watched one that was like that. They're like, okay, this is what they're good at. This is yes. the weapon that we need to use. Yes, I think that was Magnificent Ruffians, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, I seem to remember them planning that like next to the die factory or something. Right, but that's you know that's slightly different from what I'm saying. Like they're like, okay, this is what they use. This is a good counter against it. There was a. I've been rewatching Game of Thrones, and there was a scene similar to that where Jorah's talking to this uh, Dothraki guy, and he's like, yeah, you know, you know, this weapon that you guys use, the Arak, the curved blade, it's good against, you know, if you're on horseback, but not so good if you're fighting against somebody in armor. And then he fights a different guy later on, and the guy tries to kill him with his Arak, and, he's, and he, his weapon gets stuck in Jorah's armor, and Jorah just like backhands him with his sword across the face. It's like, yep. Oh. It's like, yep, I guess you don't need armor, you chump. Christ. Oh, sword to the face. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I like scenes like that. It's like, oh man, I'm having a really hard time. Like we are definitely very evenly matched, you know, when it comes to our styles and our weapons and like your weapon right. is designed specifically to counteract mine. Well, okay, well, now I'm going to use a different weapon. I have an axe, yeah. or I have a, a curved blade, or the scene in the restaurant where the the four guys go after him, and he's using, they use their, like, they look like Tonfa. Yes. And they link up somehow. Right, yeah. And they, they kind of trap him within the four, the four weapons, and so he's trying to fight them all off. Like, so they're That's holding cool. him in this little, like, he's literally penned in. And, like, they're swinging their yeah. curved blades at him. And then uh, Spearman shows up. And uh, speaking of the spring-loaded weapons we were talking about earlier, start shooting spears at guys, like little tricks. Right. Um, <laughs> and then we see that at the end. Now, what did he catch the blade in? Because it just looked like a really wide net that, you know, maybe it was used for catching large fish. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, it, it seemed like it was definitely made from the same material as the net that they captured uh, Philip Quack in. But uh, it was a very small blade, 
and like the holes in this net were way too big <laughs> to catch this thing unless it went in sideways which it didn't but right. then they just or shot you, a whole bunch of like I don't know I, I couldn't tell if they were nails or steel chopsticks again you know calling back from the earlier thing yeah that was weird I was going to bring that up though it's like you think it's empty but then these little nails or whatever shoot out of it afterwards yeah it's like wait what <laughs> like where did that come from like and they just kind of sprayed it was almost like a, a scatter shot of a shotgun like where did this come from what is this right how did you load that did you yeah exactly and it was funny because they really telegraphed that with as soon as uh the spearman took uh chiang shang aside and said hey okay uh, i got this special weapon this is how it works and only use it at the last resort only use it at the last and you know and this was like in the last third of the film i'm like okay he's going to come in at the last minute and help phil quack and sure enough that's exactly what happened yeah it's like gee i wonder if that'll come into play later Right. If they had done that at the beginning of the film, but they couldn't, I guess, because the Spearman hadn't allied himself with them, but it would have made more sense. So, I don't know. But let's let's talk about the Ten Deadly Killers here, or Ten Deadly Killers of the Underworld, as they are known. So you get the Axeman. That was cool. Again, a short scene, but like you said, he, uh, Philip Lowe, I guess, dispatched him with chopsticks, dumped him down the well. <laughs> Again, like... He kills that other guy, and they're like, what do we do with him? I don't know. Throw him in the backyard. Like, I was waiting for, like, a steady parade of assassins to come in, and, like, which it did, but I was waiting for, like, more and more guys, and, like, they have to keep, like, piling, like, you just see, like, this ever-growing pile of bodies in the backyard. That's what I was waiting for. And yeah, then, like, yeah. have to awkwardly explain what's going on, like, the end of Snatch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's what I, because I, I was like, all right, this is the comedy. Here we go. And it's like, nope, killed you with a plate, killed you with a couple of chair legs, and then Spearman showed up and shot you full of holes. <laughs> oh, man. And we had the fortune teller who um, pretended to be blind at first. That actually caught me off guard. I totally didn't suspect that he was um he was one of the ten. I was thinking, oh, well, where's the story going here? And then, of course... Philip Quark's pulling on the end of his pole to lead him on, and the end comes off and it reveals a blade inside his walking staff. I thought that was kind of cool. There were a lot of accidental deaths in that. Like, he kicked the guy into the roof, and then, like, oh, I landed on this sword. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, first I spilled my coffee, now this. What a Monday, you know? Right. And then you had the uh, the butcher, and it's like, yep. oh, they just zoomed in on this giant curved blade. I wonder if he's a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about telegraphing your moves, like because they I named know. he named who all the different like assassins were, right? And it's like, and what kind of restaurant also has like you know room and board? Like, is that? A typical thing because we don't see that all that often. Like, We've seen it a few times. We in, like, um... we see a lot of restaurants, but like, ver and we've seen a lot of hotels who serve food, but very rarely. Like, oh yes, I'm here for dinner. Also, a nice room. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Wait, did you say an ice room? No, a <laughs> nice room. Oh, okay, because we don't have an ice room here. It's far you, too warm. you get that a lot in spaghetti westerns too, where they walk into the bar and then they they order up a room as well and go upstairs. Yeah, I mean that makes. Sense. I mean hotel bars, you know, you're gonna, and usually they're right across the street from the brothel. Right. <laughs> Sometimes they're part of the brothel. 
Yeah, I mean, you want a room for a week? Like, it's got all the amenities. Now, the the best one I thought was the bookkeeper because I don't think I've ever seen death by an abacus in my life in a movie. An abacus? Abacus. Sorry, I keep pronouncing it wrong. You put the uh, you put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. The wrong syllable. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's like oh, like all right. First things first. How are those balls sharp? <laughs> he was just using it. He's like, do 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 you? Oh, oh yeah, I'm keeping track of things. Surprise ball attack! Like it's like, wait, what? Why are they? Why are they sticking into this thing? Like they're not sharp, they're not bladed. Like what the hell's going on? And I was like, ah, it's not an abacus. It's nunchucks. It's like, right? What? Like that was fun though. Like if you're gonna disguise a weapon, that's a good way to do it. That was cool. That was cool. All I could think of was that if the movie was made today, it'd be like an iPad or a tablet or something, and he pulls the sides off, and the tablet screen shatters, and all the glass shoots off at the at the opponent, and then the sides turn into nunchucks, or like you know some sort of bladed wet, like foldable blades. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Aha! Take that. Oh, but I mean, it, it did have you know the typical, you know, the stuff that we've come to expect from. Uh, not only Shaw Brothers films, but also like the the stereotypical kung fu films of the the seventies and eighties, where you know guys are saying something and they're like very much pointing at somebody, like "Yes, you and I will destroy you for killing my master." You know, and like you know that kind of over the top hammy acting, right? But I mean, it's so much. It's it's done so well in Shaw Brothers films. It's like you don't realize that's what's going on until after. It's not like as over the top as like, you know, some of the films with Bolo Young where his voice is dubbed like in Bloodsport where he like has like that that uh, he opens his eyes real wide and like has that creepy smile and he like points at Van Damme and he's like, you will be dead next. I will snap you like your friend. It's just like, <laughs> oh, you couldn't get anyone better to dub his voice over. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, man. But we we talked about the young kid and, uh, you know, I thought that was OK. But like we said, he just he didn't last very long. He wasn't that good of a sword fighter. No, he. Uh, he. He talked a lot of shit yeah and then you have that line where it's like ah soon you will be dead it's like huh that's what he said and look where he is now right <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's the like, one that got the two the the um the stool legs are into his chest right yes because it's yeah. you know as we've talked about in the past uh on especially on these these uh film commentaries 100 percent of the time a blunt Flat objects are very easy to insert several inches deep into someone's rib cage. <laughs> Table leg, no problem. I mean, at least with chopsticks, they kind of come to a point. And if you're, I don't know, that still would be tough to do. Like you're stabbing into somebody's stomach, I guess it's you know it's kind of soft. Yeah, yeah, it didn't go through his rib cage. So no, it definitely went through his spine though when they popped out the backside when he what did he hit him with like a the oh he hit him with the tray and shoved him all the way through. Right, right. Oh, uh, and then we we kind of talked about the old man with the three youths with that was a great that was a great fight. I mean, that went on for a while and you know, Philip Quack is leaping and jumping through the the whatever it is that they connected the nunchucks to or or whatever like you said they were Yeah, the tanfa. Uh, tanfa, yeah. And it's basically um, like a nightstick. 
Exactly. Yeah. And I was like wondering, I'm like, how is he going to get out of this? And then, of course, the Spearman kind of showed up and, and helped him out. I will say the most powerful and simultaneously weakest object in the entire Shauniverse is a table or furniture. Because <laughs> how many times have we seen a guy that's like, oh, let me just snap this table in half and use it as a weapon. Or let me grab this stool and use it as a weapon to defend myself against someone with like a giant sword. And they're always, always able to block these, you know, like they're able to rip the legs off a table, no problem. Yeah. But then the table can stand up to hundreds of strikes from, you know, swords or, or other bladed objects. Nary a scratch to be found. <laughs> but like, you know, you'll get punched and you'll smash through the table. So like, right. They're simultaneously the strongest and weakest. It's like Schrodinger's table. It's, <laughs> it's awesome. I love it. It's like whatever the plot needs, that's what it is. And it's funny that you said that because you reminded me that I was thinking when Philip Kwok went to rip the legs off the stool, I was thinking to myself, well, what if he couldn't? What if the stool was way stronger than he expected and he goes to break them off and they don't break off? What's he going to do then, you know? I want to see one kind of like the... Uh, one of these times, you know, I want it to be like a comedy where, uh, do you remember when they did Saturday Night Live and they were doing the Olympics, but steroids were mandatory and the guy went to do the deadlift. It was like 4,000 pounds and he ripped his arms off. <laughs> no, I didn't see that. I, well, it's like, it was like Phil Hartman. That's like, that's when it was so like early 90s. I want to see somebody go to do that, like go to grab a... Uh, uh, table legs and like they go to grab it and like their arms rip off because the table's too strong <laughs> that's hilarious that'd be awesome like i mean that's definitely it's definitely right up their alley it's like oh no and then like the guy gets his arms replaced like jacks in mortal Kombat. yeah oh yeah i mean that, that would be cool. see i i should have made shaw brothers movies 10 years before i was born i know kidding <laughs> Hey, the same thing happened to Panthro on the uh, the remake of the Thundercats cartoon. Oh, see, I didn't which, see that. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was horrifying. I'm like, oh, my God, he lost his arms on a cartoon. <laughs> yeah, that's that's unfortunate. Oh, Although the best, man. I have seen that happen once in a, in a Marvel comic where all these uh, heralds of Galactus were fighting this guy. Uh, his name is Terax. Oh, yeah. And they uh, somebody took his axe away from him. And he goes, uh, no, his name was Morg. Terax was a, was fighting against him. His name was oh, okay. Morg, uh, M-O-R-G. And he's like, he's like one of the guys was a robot, and he uh, he took the axe away. And he's just like, oh, since you've relieved me of my weapon, I have no choice but to disarm you. And he ripped his goddamn arms off. And I was like, <laughs> that's a hell of a one-liner to say before you rip somebody's arms off. <laughs> that's awesome. It's like, that's awesome. It would have been, like, he just kind of grabbed him and ripped him off and then, like, beat him with it. Um, yeah. But it would have been better if he just, like, you know, had, like, pummeled him and he was, like, standing over him. And then he just grabs the guy's arms and just pulls him off. Like, yeah. that's a and that that's a great line. And that's something I would expect in a Shaw Brothers film. Right. <laughs> Since you have relieved me of my weapon, I must disarm you. Oh, no, my arms. <laughs> just a flesh wound. <laughs> How will I kill people with chopsticks now? <laughs> Stick them in where his stumps are, you know? <laughs> he can swing them around. <laughs> yeah, or you could oh, uh, get, like, various weapons that you just, like, swinging weapons, and the guy just, like, 
kind of like dances his way over and like hits you with nunchucks. Yeah. You know, and it was funny, I, it, when the movie opened, you got to see them kind of swinging around the flags, which I thought was really cool, and I'm like, oh, good, you know, iron flag, okay, here we go, we're going to see some, fl- you know, cloth foo throughout the thing, and we don't really see them in use until the end fight, which was interesting, right? I will say, um, uh, this movie did have a significant amount of fraudulent advertising, because every flag <laughs> was made of cloth, uh, not one of them was made of iron. That's true. Although I guess that would make it more difficult to kind of wave them around or have them, you know, flap majestically in the breeze. Right, right. <laughs> but I did love the um, the Iron Flag's outfits, the black and the red. Those were cool looking. Oh, my God. The beginning when they all kept, like, flourishing with their capes. Yeah. <laughs> all I could think of is, like, wow, I remember doing that same thing with a towel tucked inside my shirt as I would jump from couch to couch when I was five pretending to be Batman. Yeah. <laughs> Look at me, did I have you, a cape, I'm majestic. Did you notice there was a slight I, I don't know if it was really a blooper or what, but at the beginning when um after uh, Philip Kwok and Chang Shang break up the prostitution ring, they go back to their base of operations, or I don't know if it was a temple or whatever. And the leader is sort of doing his form while everybody's watching. And then he stops, and they come in, and they start talking, and one of his guys puts his cape on his shoulder. He just throws it over his shoulder. He doesn't tie the tie. And the leader turns around, walks to his you know throne chair or his leader chair, and then he turns around to sit down, and it's tied. So I don't know if maybe he tied it while he was walking with his back to the camera or if that was a goof, because I believe there was a cut in there, but I just thought that was kind of funny. It just seems like it was a, an inconsistency you know, uh, um, what's the word that they use on IMDb? Continuity. Continuity error. That's what it is. Yeah. Continuity. You know, like, come in here. <laughs> like watching, watching uh, how much you know liquid is in a cup as as uh, everybody, you know, as a guy drinks. It's like, oh, you drank half of that cup. Yet when we cut back to you here, it's full. And now back to you over here. There's one like that in the Matrix where. Uh, when Neo and Morpheus are meeting for the first time and Morpheus has his arms behind his back, when they're yep. showing the camera shot from behind Morpheus, his arms are behind his back. But when they're showing it from Neo's point of view and you see the front of Morpheus, his arms are at his side. Oh, that's funny. I never noticed that. Unless he's like switching back and forth real quick. Yeah, I'd, right, I'd, or right. you could just say, oh, it was a glitch in the Matrix. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, like that's if hilarious. any movie has the uh, has the ability to get away with that. It's that one. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know what's funny? Slightly off topic, but it remi- you reminded me. Um, I interviewed Johnny Whitaker yesterday for Then Is Now, and he was telling me when they did the TV show Family Affair, um, Brian Keith, who was the main star in it, was also a producer on it. But the TV show, when they shot the episodes, they would shoot for six months. But Brian Keith only wanted to work for three months. And so they would, in the first three months, they would have to shoot all of his scenes for all of the episodes. And then the second three months, they'd shoot all the other characters for those episodes. And he said it was just a nightmare for the continuity supervisor because they ended up having to get like three or four outfits of the same outfit for each kid because if one got stained or dirty or whatever, and then they had to pay attention. Okay, well, actually, this scene comes before the one we shot two months ago and you were wearing this. Oh, and you had a ketchup stain on it, so we've got to make sure it's the right one and i can't even imagine doing a show that way that just sounds asinine to me <laughs> i'd be like well you're fired and uh we'll get somebody who is gonna work you know i know kidding well that's probably why he got himself as a producer then he can't fire himself 
I mean, they could get somebody else to produce it. Like, it's like, I'm a producer. I'm only going to work half the time. It's like, hmm. Right. No. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, man. Hey, it was the late 60s. What do you want? Yeah. I'm sure they could have found somebody. So, final thoughts on uh, the flag of iron. I thought it was fun, despite no iron flags. Um, I enjoyed the, uh, the the choreography, as I pretty much always do. Um, I enjoyed the characters, not as much not as much comedy as we usually see. Not a lot, not a lot of uh, you know fun back and forths. Uh, this one had a more serious tone to it. Yeah. Other than that opening scene, which I was like, all right, this is typical. This is how, you know, things go. This is just the way it's going to be. And it's like, oh, now it's not. Now it's very, very serious. I wouldn't I wouldn't go as far as saying, like, somber or, you know, anything like that. But right. it's definitely more serious than most of the films that we see. I mean, there's some unintentional comedy, again, like the uh, guy getting pinned to the wall or, yeah. you know, the man in white. <laughs> Dying, standing up against the uh, standing up against the wall, which we've seen before. Uh, we just saw, uh, yeah, was yep. one of the last two movies. You know, with what's his name getting pinned to the wall after because uh, he had a sword through him. Sun Chen, yeah, yeah. yeah um, I always want to call him Philip Kwok, and I don't know why. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. But yeah, like he, I, I liked it a lot. Like it's it's so much fun. Like I've. I've never really not enjoyed a, uh, a a Shaw Brothers film, except for that that really weird one. Um, Heaven and Hell. Yeah, like, and uh, Life Gamble wasn't great, but right. there were aspects of it that I enjoyed. Like, the fight scenes always kind of, it's like, well, I would give this, you know, film on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd give it you know, a three because I didn't like it, but the fight scenes made it way more interesting. And the anticipation of the choreography and the fight scenes and the, the use of various weapons would push it up to like a five or a six. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they're that good. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely enjoyed this one. I, uh, I think this is up there as one of my favorites. I really, really like this one. Um, I thought it was very similar to the Mast Avengers because both movies were really heavy on plot. They both didn't have Lo Meng and Sun Chan in them, and they were both just amazingly violent. So um, I highly recommend this one, too. I think this one is, um, yeah, like I said, it's a running contender for one of my favorite Venom films thus far. It's just so good from beginning to end. Yeah, I agree. So, all right, well, we are going to take a break here. And when we return, we are going to cover the film My Name is Nobody from 1973, starring Terrence Hill and Henry Fonda. Hey, folks. I just wanted to take a minute here to tell you about the hosting service that we use at Haven Podcasts, podserve.fm. Podcast hosting has never been easier. They do all the work to get your podcast on Apple Podcasts and other major podcast networks. They help you navigate the podcasting world, whether you're brand new or have years of experience. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am with their service. When I first started this podcast, I searched around intensely for the right hosting platform. I found PodServe and used their simple four-step process, and in a short amount of time, my podcasts were on the internet and available through all the major podcast networks. And their customer support is unreal. Every time I goof things up and make a mistake, like uh, posting the wrong show to the wrong feed, 
I email them, and I kid you not, within minutes I get a response and the problem is resolved. And they're the only podcasting host that actually helps you get listeners. Other podcast hosts stop at Podcast Upload and don't help promote your podcast. Well, PodServe makes sure your podcast is seen by thousands of people. The promotion is free, and they put you on PodParadise.com, which has over 5,000 visits a day from avid podcast listeners and is growing every day. Each day, Pod Paradise selects five podcasts to spotlight on their front page. Maybe yours could be there soon. PodSurf's pricing is simple. Only 19 bucks a month. That's it. No tiered pricing platform, just one low fee. For 19 bucks a month, you get unlimited storage, unlimited podcasts, free podcast promotion, your podcasts on all platforms, detailed download analytics, one-on-one customer support. You pay month to month, and you can cancel at any time. And when you sign up, you get 14 days free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. I love their service so much, I put a reminder in my phone to add my credit card when the 14 days was almost up. I couldn't give them my 19 bucks fast enough. I'm telling you, I, I really didn't believe it until I actually signed up and saw my podcast on everything from iTunes to Stitcher and Spotify and more in a ridiculously short amount of time. So if you've got a podcast and you don't have a hosting platform, I highly recommend podserve.fm. Check them out. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Someone like you. 
you go away, who's going to be left? Nobody. Maybe so, but a man's got to quit sometime. <laughs> Someone like you got to go out with style. But if I don't kill Beauregard first, he'll kill me. You know where he is? Must be down below. <laughs> Secret of a long life is to try not to shorten it. Know the rules? Gotta hit the glass before it hits the floor. Like you never seem to catch on. It's a matter of time before someone's gonna shoot holes in yours. It's always the best of the first to go. Which means you ain't going nowhere. Staying here with your engine friends for good. Since I was a boy, I always dreamed of you like that. An immense open plain. 150 purebred sons of bitches on horseback. You facing them. The next one might hit a couple of inches lower. Who are you, anyway? Me? Nobody. So the second film we watched uh, for this week's episode is My Name Is, My Name is Nobody, or uh, Il Mio Nome e Nessuno. Nessuno. My Italian is terrible. Uh, it's a 1973 comedy, comedic spaghetti western starring Terrence Hill and Henry, Henry Fonda, directed by Tonino Valeri and based on an idea by Sergio Leone. Uh, and anytime you know folks see Sergio Leone, they just automatically assume that he directed it. Uh, you know, kind of the way everybody thinks that uh, Tim Burton directed uh, Nightmare Before Christmas when in fact it was uh, Henry Selnick. Selnick. Oh yeah. Um. Uh, so this film star uh, follows the story of Nobody, who's Terrence Hill, who attempts to get his idol, Jack Beauregard, played by Henry Fonda, to take on the gang of outlaws known as the Wild Bunch. And, uh, you know, it kind of reminds me of the uh, the scene in uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where uh, the guy is surrounded by uh, all the women, and John Cleese comes in and quote-unquote rescues him. He's like, I can do it. There's only 150 of them. You know, like. <laughs> so Beauregard is an aging gunslinger who just wants to retire peacefully to Europe. Uh, after watching him quickly shoot three gunmen who attempted to ambush him in a barber shop, the barber son asks his father if there's anyone in the world faster than Beauregard, to which the barber replies, faster than him? Nobody. Uh, Beauregard pauses to watch down and out Terrence Hill catching fish before continuing on to an old gold mine. And the way he catches the fish is, again, a way to kind of illustrate his speed, where he catches a cricket, puts it in the water, uh, and as the cricket is kind of flailing around, uh, he's waiting for a fish to come up and grab it, at, that, at which point he takes a giant log and smashes the fish, which <laughs> is probably not the most efficient way to... Uh, to fish, but you know it works for him. I'm like, we even see him just kind of like emerge from in the water, like you know the creature from the Black Lagoon. It's like, okay, like I guess that's a, a that's a kind of a smart thing to do, you know, instead of like sloshing your way in and you know scaring all the fish away. Right. It's pretty interesting, but again, it's just shows how unconventional nobody is. 
So uh, Beauregard finds his friend Red dying after an attack from a gang, and Beauregard asks Red about the whereabouts of Nevada, uh, but Red only manages to disclose Nevada's village before dying. Now, Nevada is a guy, not the state, just so there's no confusion. Because <laughs> right. if if Beauregard was like, where's Nevada? And Red could have just been like, West. And, you know, <laughs> he would eventually made it. That's what I thought um, he was going to say. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's the that's the trouble with guys who have the same name of uh, of like places. It's like, where's Tennessee? Uh, east of here. <laughs> like. So at the horse relay station, the down and out is uh, asked by three men to deliver a basket to Beauregard inside where he talks to Beauregard, revealing his detailed knowledge of Beauregard's feats. Uh, he throws the basket outside where the bomb that was hidden inside it explodes. Because even as he goes, what's in the basket? Oh, a bomb, I reckon. And he ate all the beans, which is a trademark. He's like, I smell beans and bacon. And yeah. she's like, yeah, it's for the three men outside. He's like, nah, I'll take it because they're not going to need it in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he throws the bomb outside and uh, the down and out Terrence Hill, also referred to here as a bum, introduces himself as nobody. Uh, and he, they kind of call him a bum because, you know, they see him uh, sleeping in the hay, these three guys, and that's where they wanted to uh, have him bring the basket in. He's got one totally worn out boot, and then another. Uh, his other foot uh, has no boot on it. And then when he does finally put his boot on, it's not the same. Like they didn't match. You know, he's he's scruffy looking. Actually, I will say his his shirt and pants look better in this film than in any of the Trinity films. Right. And speaking of the uh, the the shop that he has, where you can purchase stuff uh, from from Terrence Hill, uh, he has. Not replicas, but recreations of the shirt that he wore in the in the in the Trinity films. You know, the old ratty, holy, filthy, gross shirt. <laughs> so you too can uh, dress a uh, uh, homeless chic, or <laughs> you know what we uh, used to call a, a friend of mine, uh, hobo sexual. There you go. <laughs> um, so the bum introduces himself as nobody, and he idolizes Beauregard and wants him to end his career in style by taking out all 150 of the Wild Bunch by himself. The bandits are using a worthless gold mine to launder their their stolen gold. Uh, Sullivan is the man uh, is a mine owner, and he believes Beauregard is trying to kill him, so he wants to kill him first. So what they're doing is they're taking the stolen gold that they use, melting it down. And then reforming it into the gold bars with the, because uh, it says Cheyenne, so they're in Wyoming. And reforming it with, uh, you know, the, the stamp and the seal of the, the Cheyenne mine. Which, you know, makes sense, because it's not like they had CSI back there to be like, aha, this gold contra- contains traces of, you know, this mineral, which is only found in this. And that was right. a specially made piece for the Duchess of... I don't know, Dodge City, and you know, <laughs> she recently got her stuff stolen, and now we know you're, this is what you're doing. So, you know, it's a pretty good, pretty good scam, especially because the mine is producing zero gold. So, arriving at Nevada's village, Beauregard finds nobody there. <sighs> this is this can be confusing. It's not a ghost town. There are people that inhabit, but uh, Terrence Hill is already there, right. uh, who reveals himself that the Nevada kid, Beauregard's brother. Has died. Again, 
I'm not. I'm not going to keep calling him Oba. I'm going to have to call him Terrence Hill. So Terrence again successfully tries to get Beauregard to take on the Wild Bunch because I get the the thing like nobody is faster. Like yes, yes, his name is nobody. But right. like when he's like nobody tries to get Beauregard to take on the Wild Bunch. It's like yes, they do. That's the whole point of the movie. That's the entire <laughs> plot. Well, um, you, you can call him Nesano because that's what it was in the subtitles. They referred to him as Nesano. Yeah. Um, I just call him Terrence. I think it's easier because <laughs> I think Nesano means nobody. Well, it does, um, but it doesn't sound yeah. like nobody. <laughs> right. But if we have somebody Italian listening to the show because they like the. They oh, like, that's you true. Know, you know. So, yeah, well, I'll just call him Terrence. Avoid all the confusion. So arriving <laughs> in a town, Sullivan hires Terrence to kill Beauregard, but Terrence instead helps him take out Sullivan's men. The wild bunch ride into town to collect sticks of dynamite, stashing them in their saddlebags. Now, these saddlebags, they're uh, very particular, and uh, we have a little bit of foreshadowing at the beginning because uh, Terrence has one of these, and Bo- uh, yeah, Beauregard uh, remarks that he something about looking like a whorehouse, like the entrance of a whorehouse, and he's like, oh, I like to stand out. I like, to, I like people to see me. Because when he first meets him and like he he keeps following him to this town and he finds out that his brother is dead, Beauregard wants to duel with Terence, but Terence refuses, and Beauregard shoots his hat four times, but leaves only one bullet hole, showing that the old man still has it. Because uh, we find out that he was fifty-one uh, at the end of the at the time of this this film, uh, the Bo- Beauregard's character, not specifically uh, Fonda. So, later an old man tells Beauregard that he was bought out of a worthless gold mine by his partners, Nevada and Red, only to have the mine produce a ton of gold afterwards. So Beauregard's like, wait a minute. Goes back there, catches Sullivan loading sacks of gold powder. Sullivan offers Beauregard Nevada's share, but Beauregard says, I don't care about that. I just want two sacks and $500. And then he leaves to catch a train to New Orleans, which is where he is going to get a boat uh, but he needs $500 to secure his reservation now remember they're in Wyoming and he only has at this point 12 days to get from Wyoming to New Orleans so I say good luck with that on a horse (laughs) and train Uh, but maybe he made it I don't know I I'm not uh, you know I'm an intelligent man but I I don't consider myself educated in the ways of train travel from Cheyenne to New Orleans in right. the late 18 or early 1900s. And just as a side note, if you want to feel old, kids today refer to the late, to the 80s and 90s as the late 1900s. Oh, my God. So just throwing that out there for wow. you. <laughs> if you want to feel old... That's how the kids are referring to the 80s and 90s as God. the late 1900s. Do you remember the late 1900s with dial-up <laughs> modems? Oh, And pagers? Jesus. Oh, I remember that. That was in the late 1900s. Oh, my God. That stings. It, but it seems like it's 100 years ago if you say it that way. <laughs> Well, it's like the 2000s can be referred to as the aughts. Well, I remember back in aught six when uh, Terrence Hill made this movie. Yeah, everybody uh, everybody is oh, yeah, making me feel old. All right, so uh, <laughs> Terrence steals a train that's being loaded at a station with bars of gold guarded by soldiers. 
And uh, I thought this was one of the most unnecessary things. Like, there's a there's a men's room, and the train conductor gets in, and Terrence goes in and starts like whistling at him, and like kind of I don't, don't want to say distracting him, but like really making him giving him stage fright, for lack of a better term. Um, because as soon as Terrence leaves, there is a uh, graphic depiction. Uh, Audio-wise, of the man relieving himself, and then for good measure as he walks out, farts a couple times. So, <laughs> super awesome. I'm glad that was in there. You know, we were just talking about the last movie, about how they cut stuff out. Right. Yeah, that could have been cut out. I don't think that was necessary, but that's me. Uh, so, Beauregard is waiting down the line when the Wild Bunch charged toward him across a featureless plane. Uh, nobody, nobody, Jesus... Terrence arrives with the train, but refuses to rescue Beauregard until he makes his name in the history books. Remembering the mirrored conches on the gang's dynamite-filled saddlebags, Beauregard shoots them, takes out most of the gang until Terrence lets him board the train. And Terrence was kind of like, he could have used that abacus from the first movie. He's kind of keeping track by, like, marking a shovel. (laughs) Keeping track of how many guys he's blown up. And then, you know, you see... Beauregard, like, kind of ducking down on the other side of the train tracks, you know, just firing his rifles dry, you know, and you got the the wild bunch kind of ducked behind, like, their felled horses, you know, using them as cover. It's pretty uh, pretty awesome. Uh, in New Orleans, Beauregard and Terrence duel in the street with a photographer and many spectators on hand. Uh, Terrence is faster, and Beauregard falls to the ground, apparently dead. Uh, I I was like, oh, yeah, he's totally dead. Look at all the blood that you don't see from his gunshot wound. Uh, the remaining members of the Wild Bunch see the uh, see it and uh, switch their search to uh, the anonymous Terrence. Later, he walks by the ship that was to take Beauregard to Europe, where Beauregard is revealed to be in his cabin, writing Terrence an affectionate farewell. So, I liked this a lot. This seems like the type of character that uh, Terrence Hill has been typecast to be. I will say the one thing I didn't care for uh, was the fact that they sped up the film anytime he was trying to do something that was supposed to be fast. Right, I agree. We went from that great, not quite dual scene in the bar that uh, we discussed recently where you know he would slap the guy every time he was trying to draw his gun. And they kind of recreated that, but they sped it up so much it looked right. comical. Like it I mean this is I guess this is supposed to be a comedy. Exactly. Yeah. But it wasn't ha ha funny, it was like cartoony. Well, and I think that's the, the uh Europeans idea of comedy because they did speed it up in the previous film, just not as fast as in this one. But then you've also got the scene after the, the train conductor comes out of the, the latrine there. And he tells the guys, I'm not on the train. The train's been stolen. And all the soldiers run after him in super sped up fast motion. And it does this um, iris close to ch- to end the scene. And that's straight out of something Charlie Chaplin would do. And this movie has been said to, parts of it have been influenced by Charlie Chaplin. So they were definitely trying to go for some comedy. I just, I felt uncomfortable watching those scenes. I didn't like them. <laughs> yeah, and my... My takeaway in this is he's essentially playing the same character he played in Trinity, this lazy, lazy-ish, arrogant, you know, but he's arrogant. He, Han Solo. Yeah. He's like Han Solo if Han was, 
you know, instead of like this industrious smuggler, he was kind of just like a drifter. Yeah. You know, it's that's how Terrence Hill has, you know, been cast in these last few films. Now, I haven't seen enough of his uh, filmography to say that this is how he always plays, but like he does this character well. Uh, we didn't get to see really any acrobatics from him in this one. Oh, yeah. Good point. I didn't but I did have shades of Ringo earlier uh, watching this film because when he's doing the uh, the trick to drink the uh, the booze and then shoot the glasses, yeah, he's like, oh, couldn't I have milk? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's just like, wait, no, that wasn't him. That was Ringo. That was a different guy. Right, right. That probably but, you was know, a reference. There was a lot of little references in this movie. Yeah, like there's, but yeah, I just look at it. It's like, oh, he was a, you know, blonde, blue-eyed, you know, badass gunfighter. Like, you know, you see where I might confuse the two of them, right? Because that was a significant thing. That's true. That's true. Did you notice at the beginning you had mentioned in the uh, synopsis um, that there was only one hole in his hat? There was actually two holes in his hat and uh, Terrence Hill covers it up so that uh, Henry Fonda doesn't see it. But then he ends up taking his finger off and we see the two holes. And I think that was to illustrate because the Fonda sees it and he has just has this kind of look on his face like, Oh shit. Like, because, and when he first looks at him, he's out of focus. And so, I'm sorry, Terrence Hill is out of focus. So I think that was sort of to illustrate that he's an aging gunslinger. He may not be as fast as he used to be. Right, but he still has his deadly accuracy. I mean, he did wear glasses. He had two different pairs of glasses, if I recall. Yeah. Or he just put on the same pair twice. I don't don't know. But, you yeah. know, we see him put on a couple of pairs of glasses or the same pair twice towards the end of the film when he's shooting with the, the rifle. Like, So he still has his accuracy and his skill. I think it was another continuity error. Oh, Maybe. When you see the front of the hat, there's just that one hole, and then the back of the hat. I mean, if they're shooting blanks, I don't understand why <laughs> there would be an extra hole. But right. maybe it was just like, you know, the first time they did it, it didn't line up correctly, so they had to put a second one in, and, like, nobody really noticed. Yeah. So that might that might have been what it was. Hmm, um, interesting. Um, I, I did also, I did a little research on The Wild Bunch because I was getting confused thinking about the other movie, the, the movie The Wild Bunch. And apparently it's, there there really was a gang known as The Wild Bunch, and it was no relation to do with the movie from 1969. Um, but they were also known as the Doolin Dalton Gang or the Oklahombres, where uh, they were basically a gang of American outlaws based in the Indian Territory in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And they were active in Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma Territory during the 1890s. They robbed banks and stores, held up trains, killed killed lawmen. Um, they were also known as the Oklahoma Long Riders because of the long dusters that they wore. Uh, but there was only 11 members in that group. And this particular uh, iteration of them is a fictional version of these guys. And uh, there was, of course, 150, 150 of them. So Yeah. But they pretty much all met violent deaths. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought it was, I thought it was good. Um, I didn't know that exact fact about uh, about them. I just assumed, you know, the Wild Bunch was a real gang, and you know, the I haven't seen, you know, as we've discussed before, these have really been the only westerns I've seen other than, um, um, 
Fast and Bone Tomahawk. Tomahawk. Yep. So and the Quick and the Dead. Uh, yeah, and the Quick and the Dead. Yep. Because yep. uh, I'm not really in the Magnificent Seven. I've seen the original and the remake. That's right. So I'm not overly well versed when it comes to westerns. So having not seen the Wild Bunch, I just assumed that. Okay, this is just a reference to a real life, you know, like, you know, Jesse James was a real guy. Billy the Kid was a real guy. You know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid were real people. So, you know, I know that there's a lot of, you know, you know, fictionalization and and dramatization about, you know, how the West was. Oh, no. And I just saw Tombstone recently. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So, yep, there's another one. But, again, that's one I've only watched in the last couple of weeks. Right. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's something that I just assumed, you know, was historically based on historical fact, but maybe not entirely accurate. Like, you know, like Titanic. You know, everybody knows that Jack and Rose were not real people on the Titanic, right. <laughs> but they were used as a storytelling device. Fun fact about the Titanic I found out earlier today. The guy that was playing the violin. Yeah who ended up dying in the in the you know, the sinking was charged his father got a bill for the suit that he was wearing because the the uniform like whoever the like the the guy who owned the company that he worked for had done some alterations on the uniform and because the uniform was lost at sea his father was sent a bill for the uniform because they couldn't recover it wow it's like wow what a dick <laughs> Like, <laughs> I was just gonna say that. That's terrible. Oh my god. That's just like, yeah, I know your kid's dead, but I need like forty dollars for his clothes. Yeah, because <laughs> like we can't get it back, and like that was a pretty big investment. So, wow, that's crazy. Help, help oh. me out a little bit here. Yeah, <laughs> can you fork over the money? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. But speaking of The Wild Bunch, Sam Peckinpah directed that movie, and he was one of the names in the graveyard that they go to. Yeah, which I thought was a nice touch. Yeah. Like like I said, a lot of little touches in that. Uh, This film was directed by Tonino Valeri, and he's only done 19 films, uh, one of which includes Day of Anger, which we've already covered here with uh, Lee Van Cleef and Giuliano Gemma. Yep, that's the, uh, the, 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 as soon as I thought of Ringo, that was the first one that popped into my head, even though... He wasn't Ringo in that one. Right. <laughs> but I just remember him walking out with that nice suit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's that's the image I have of, of, of uh, Mr. Gemma. Right. And the name you mentioned also uh, earlier is Sergio Leone, um, which I walked into this thinking he directed it. I didn't realize till the end of the movie when I started to do my research that he didn't. But the movie was very... Very Leone. I mean, I know you haven't seen a lot of these, but his his fingerprints are all over this film, and we can discuss that um, in detail in a little bit. Um, he's pr- practically the inventor of the spaghetti western, and when we do one of his films, we'll really go into depth about Leone and stuff. But this story was basically his idea. I think he was he saw the deconstruction of the uh, spaghetti westerns, and he wanted to. I think he also kind of wanted to show that he could do a comedy too, even though he. He's, you know, didn't really have a huge hand in this film. Unlike he has a comedy called Duck You Sucker, which I came after this. And uh, we'll get to that one at some point. And that's that's really Leone's sort of farewell to the spaghetti westerns. Yeah, I know he did the, uh, you know, a lot of stuff with with Eastwood, like kind of 
again, I don't have a frame of reference, but it seems like those were, you know, kind of the bigger, more mainstream, uh, at least in America, because they used American actors like Clint Eastwood. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and this is very similar, you know, like you're saying, it's like, my name is nobody. And that was like the man with no name. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you know. Boy, I wonder if those two things are uh, are related in any way, shape, or form. Right. But no, it's like you, you said with, um, you know, thinking that Leone directed it, you know, obviously he had a hand in it, but it, it's like, uh, you know, Tarantino and Rodriguez films, you know, because they feature so heavily in each other's work, there's a lot of, you know, kind of carryover in some of the stuff that they do. Yeah. And you're like, oh, yeah, didn't, you know, Dust Till Dawn, yeah, that's the, that's the Tarantino movie, right? It's like, nope. I mean, he's in it. But right. Robert Rodriguez directed it. Oh, but Desperado, right? Nope. Uh, that was that was Robert Rodriguez again. I want to see know, the so. Tarantino rated R cut of Spy Kids. Oh Jesus! <laughs> I still want. To, I'm still hoping for the. Uh, there's two things I want to see from him. I know this is a little sidetrack, but his take on Star Trek and Kill Bill Three. Oh yeah. He's supposedly only doing one more film because um, I know. And if sucks. I have a, honestly, if if we could go back in time twenty years ago, the movie I would want to see is the Vega Brothers, uh, which uh, he was going to make with Vincent Vega, played by John Travolta in oh. in, in Pulp Fiction, and Vic Vega, played by Michael Madsen. In Reservoir Dogs. Oh wow, that would yeah. And there was going to be a script with those two guys called the Vega Brothers, but by the time you know things worked out, because that came out you know ninety one, ninety three is when those two movies came out. Yeah. So twenty years ago, thirty years ago at this point, Jesus, the late nineteen (laughs) hundreds. Yeah. I know. I'm still in the mindset. Like, oh, 90? That was like 20 years ago. No, yeah, it, was it was not. Last week, you know. <laughs> no, that was not 20 years ago. That was 30 years ago. Oh, oh God. God. That's funny. Yeah. So, you know, uh, no Vega. But as long as he keeps putting out movies like Hateful Eight and, and Django, like, I'll I'll keep. All right. So I guess those count as Westerns, too? Yeah. You... Yeah, that's true. All right. So. So I've seen like seven westerns, but they're not <laughs> spaghetti in, westerns per this. se. Although they are homages to them. I mean, he he did get Ennio Morricone as Oscar, so that's true. That's true. Did you see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yes, I did. So good. That that movie was made for us fans of film. It was. I just in, really enjoyed that movie. We actually uh, we interviewed somebody who was in that movie. Uh, he plays the uh, his name's Chad Ridgely. He plays the cop that's uh, at the very end taking the statement from uh, the woman. What is she? I've only seen it once. I forget if she's speaking Italian or Spanish, and she's just like rambling on oh, yeah. in, in her native language, and he's just kind of like nodding and writing down stuff. And it's one of the funnier scenes. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a comedian yeah. by trade. So he's just kind of like not like, yep, 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 like, <laughs> and she's just like hysterically sobbing because of everything that went down. Christ. But yeah, there's uh, uh, actually somebody else who's in that. She's one of the Manson girls. Kansas Bowling is in uh, this movie Psycho Ape that a buddy of mine uh, that I've had on the show a couple times, Addison Binnick, uh, put together. It's 
hilarious. And like a lot of the scenes that they filmed, like they were filming in like Times Square and like they didn't have a permit. So they were just filming this movie. There's a guy running around in an ape costume and like, (laughs) oh my God, it's, it's amazing. Like it's one of those, like, it's so bad. It's funny. (laughs) But like he knows, Addison did a great job with it. Like, and I highly recommend it. He sells the, uh, the DVDs on, on eBay Oh, nice. Uh, Psycho Ape, I think they're like 20 bucks, uh, and it's like $3 shipping or something like that. I mean, he gave me a copy of it, like a digital copy to to watch and review, but I still bought it anyways because... Oh, nice. Yeah, you got to support people, but yeah. So yeah, that's a little off topic, sorry, but um, yeah, so back to uh, back to this. We get to see a little bit more of both Beauregard and Nobody. Um doing their their thing kind of uh showing that they're not only skilled gunfighters with a lot of speed but also they're they're wily they're streetwise yes. you know the uh when he's getting the shave like getting shaved by another person who is almost like subservient to you is one of those things that they put into movies and TV shows to show how dominant a character is over another character uh, right. we see it in Game of Thrones where Theon is forced to shave Ramsay Bolton as Ramsay is delivering like devastating news to Ramsay or to Theon and his control over Theon is so great that doesn't matter he's still just shaving him where he has the opportunity because he has a straight razor he could just slice his throat the guy's in right. a vulnerable position and you know we see that in this film Although uh, Beauregard is smart and uh, sticks his gun in the guy's crotch. The guy's like, yeah, I could cut his throat right now, but I'm going to be singing soprano the rest of my life. Right. Um, So I thought that was good. And at the end of the the film, the last shot we see, (sighs) do you think, because I couldn't tell... But did he have a gun in his hand? No, he had his finger right in Jeffrey Lewis's ass. And yes. Normally, I sit through credits, and I just had a I had to stop it at that point because they just kept that still frame, and I was like, I can't look at this; it's so disgusting. That's what I'm saying. I was like, you have a gun. <laughs> well, the whole point of that is, to, and it goes along with what Henry Fonda said in his letter that the norms of violence had changed at that point. And that was sort of to illustrate that instead of using the gun, he was just going to pretend he had a gun and not really kill the guy. Yeah. I mean, or, I mean, that could be going a whole different way. I mean, I don't know what (laughs) proclivities those two guys have, but, you know, whatever works for them, whatever makes them happy, I want them to go for it. And, (laughs) you know, maybe he's like, what are you doing? It's like, what are you doing? Well, the thing it's is, like, too, Jeffrey Lewis, which, by the way, we should talk about him in a second, but he, um, he's listed as the Wild Bunch leader, which I did not get out of this movie. Did you get that? Uh, no, I couldn't quite tell. Yeah, um, I, I didn't get that, but that's at least we know, um, you know, uh, what's his name? I almost said Trinity, that nobody was, I don't think he had any sexual inclinations towards him because he, uh, he, Lewis was the leader of the Wild Bunch, and he knew that I mean, it, he had a blade in his throat. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer, right? Right. I mean, whatever works. 
But I will say the uh, there was another guy. I was looking at it. The the guy at the beginning that was like, oh, yeah, take this basket and uh, we'll get yeah. you a horse. R.G. Armstrong. That guy was yep. the general in Predator. That's right. And I, because I was looking at his picture on IMDb, I'm like, he looks so familiar. What the hell is he in? I was like, all oh, right, Predator. Yeah, okay. He's been in tons of shit. He's the. I remember him as a kid seeing him in the movie Race with the Devil, which had uh, Warren Oates and Peter Fonda in it. And that's a really great 70s PG level horror movie. It's really fun. Uh, yeah, R.G. Armstrong is the actor. He also played Prune Face in Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy. Um, oh, that movie was so good. You know, I I, I will, again, I, I'm <laughs> kind of derailing this a little bit. That's okay. But I watched it again recently, last, within the last six, eight months, and between the, the, the Danny Elfman soundtrack and everything, I was like, this movie, if you didn't know... Like, if you close your eyes and listened, you would think you're watching Batman. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, the the music, the dialogue, like, it's essentially a Batman movie. It's like they wrote a Batman script, and they were like, at the last second, changed it to Dick, Dick Tracy. Tracy. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like, it's everything is a hundred, it's, it's a Batman movie. It, that's literally what it is. Yeah. They just made it Dick Tracy. In beautiful Technicolor. <laughs> like, in, from the bad guys to... I will say, though, uh, William Forsyth as uh, Flat Top. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Paul Sorvino as Lips Manless. That's right. Dustin Hoffman as Mumbles. Yep. Yeah, like, the the whole... I mean, that was a a great cast, and I didn't appreciate it the last time I watched it, which was in the theater... So I'd gone about 30 years in between viewings, <laughs> and I finally watched it again. I was like, this isn't bad. I enjoy yeah. this Batman film. This is the only Batman film that doesn't have uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne getting killed at the beginning. <laughs> oh, Martha's in that, too? No. Um, yeah, I only saw it in the theater, too, and I actually have not seen it since, so I'll have to revisit that. I, I'm not a big fan of Madonna, so I, every time I've thought about watching it, I'm like, ah, no. <laughs> It's it's not bad. Yeah. Like it's it's not a terrible movie. So anyways, RG Armstrong was uh he was also in Children of the Corn and he basically was in 184 films. So if you you've definitely seen him. Same thing with Jeffrey Lewis cuz I recognized him as one of the, he was sort of one of the guys in the background. He, he really didn't have a prominent role. Um people may know him. Well, first of all, he's the father of the actress Juliette Lewis. Um, who's um, he's just a very recognizable character actor. Uh, he's been in everything from Salem's Lot, which is where I first saw him when I was a kid, uh, up to The Devil's Rejects. And he's a guy on Then Is Now, we could do a whole show on him because he's just one of those character actors that's been in everything. Oh, absolutely. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, we talked about uh, uh, Terrence Hill, which I believe... I don't believe, but it would. It's fun to fantasize that he is Trinity or he's Cat. You know, he could be one of those two characters. Maybe more closer to Trinity, and this is just a continuing adventure after he splits off with Bud Spencer. Yeah, I mean, I think I like him better with Bud Spencer. Oh like yeah, the the two of them as a duo. Like, how do you go wrong with that? With that? With that team? Like, they're both so good together. Yeah. Uh, and his relationship with Beauregard was similar, but not the same as in Day of Anger with Giuliano yep. Gemma and Lee Van Cleef. Now, 
there was a couple of things that going through my head, and I'm kind of going to jump around here a little bit. But I, at one point, when Beauregard was, you know, well, when when I'm sorry, when Terrence Hill was telling the story about his uh, what his grandfather told him, he was relating that funny story about the bird and the cow shit and all that. Um, there was a point where I was thinking. I bet you it's going to turn out he's his son. And I'm like, I hope it doesn't turn out that way. Because he's like, why are you so interested in me? Why Why do you care? How do you know all this stuff about me? And I was like, oh, it's he's his son. And that's what it is. But then there was a later point where they were having a conversation at the pool table. I guess that was around the same time as the story with the bird. And yeah. he was... He's like, you're protecting me all the time. Why are you protecting me? And then I thought, well, maybe he's not the son. He's like some kind of supernatural guardian angel. That's why he can catch a fish just by clubbing it with a, you know, with a stick. And did you see, did you think of any of those things? Like when you were watching it, like who he could have been? I think he was just a devotee of Beauregard's life. Uh, I didn't think about that, but it does kind of make sense. I think if this was a more serious film, I might have gone that way. Like I might have, I might have, you know, started thinking like maybe this, you know, they're related, or maybe, you know, there's there's something to this. You know, maybe he saved him as a kid, and he just followed his career forever. Because uh, we don't know how old Terrence is. We have no clue how old he is in this. And, you know, he's got a very youthful look to him. Right. So, I mean, he could be 22. He could be 40, you know, and at the yeah. at the time. So this came out in 1973. So he was 34 when this came out. Okay. Yeah. So give or take, you know, I mean, he looked like he was in his late 20s, early 30s, you know, and we know that Beauregard... You know, because we see his his uh, you know memorial at the end of the film that he was fifty one. So this was like nineteen thirties. Now that I'm thinking about it, right? Because I I was thinking about that earlier when I mentioned like, oh, it's late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Like, wait, no, no, it wasn't. Um, no, it wasn't the thirties. It was because he talked about how eighteen eighty two was like his best year. Right. So this had to be like the eighteen nineties. I think it was early, like teens. Oh, really? Okay. I'd have to look at it again because I know he was 51. So I think he was born around, uh, I think it was 1868 to uh, like 1919 or 1878. That wouldn't make sense. He would have been four in that gunfight. Maybe he's just really good. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Unless they really didn't do the, I I don't know. I'd have to look at it again. But uh, <laughs> it's definitely the, the end of the Old West at this point. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, the, the trains and everything like New Orleans was a thing, you know, steamboats to Europe, you know, um, you know, they had telegraphs and whatnot. Right. So, you know, early, early 1900s. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to the late 1900s. So I didn't like I said, I didn't think of that, you know, directly. Because he even, you know, he even said, it's like, oh, my dad used to tell this story. And it's like, well, if that's his son, he would know the story. Oh, that's, well, he said his grandfather told him the story. Oh, grandfather. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. But then I'm sure if his grandfather told him, like, I'm sure he would have passed it on to his son as well. That's true. Yeah. yeah. So he would have been familiar with that story and he wasn't. Uh, but that doesn't mean that was his paternal grandfather. It could have been his maternal grandfather. You know, dad ran away. He was raised by his mom and his grandparents. You know, who yeah. knows? We don't really get much of a backstory for him. 
But like I said, if it had been more a more serious film and not a comedy, like I think that probably would have crossed my mind more. Like, oh, maybe he is, you know, this uh, like not avenging angel, but like a guardian angel because yeah, you'll notice that he, uh, you know, like we said, he didn't do anything at the end of uh, in the major battle other than bring the train and help Beauregard escape so that his name would be in the history books. Yeah. But, I mean, what kind of angel is like, oh, well, you got to kill all these dudes so everyone remembers you. <laughs> like, that'll be the best. Like, <laughs> Well, archangels are warriors. They fight with swords, so. <laughs> that's true. And he was really fast, like supernaturally fast. Yeah. But he's always supernaturally fast. Right. He didn't so, shoot people behind himself this time in this movie. He did uh, almost shoot that dude in the face, that creepy, gaunt, bald guy. Right, yeah. <laughs> Here's the other question I have. At that scene, when the three guys like appeared at the, at the top of the stairs, and they're like, hey, come on up here in this room with us. We'll uh, we play for higher stakes, and he's like, "Hey, okay." And he walks in the room, and there's only two guys. There's only Sullivan in there. Like, where'd those other guys go? Oh, well, I think they were just lure- Sullivan was luring him up there so he could bribe him to kill uh, Beauregard. Right, but where'd those other two guys go? They just saw him like pound four different drinks. Oh, that's true. And like, you don't leave him with any security. He doesn't. He doesn't have any security with this guy who's clearly. Uh, a trained gunfighter who just pounded all this alcohol. <laughs> a whole bottle of whiskey. <laughs> yeah, like, maybe somebody keeps an eye on him. <laughs> like, That's just a good saying. Because I was like, Where'd they, maybe those guys were supernatural. Like, they weren't there. Like, right. <laughs> maybe he hallucinated them and just walked upstairs and was like, hey, look at this. <laughs> oh, man. Greetings. This is Mr. Lobo. Are you a sinsomniac? Do you stay up late and watch what normal people call bad movies till dawn? Black and white low-budget pot boilers, box office bombs, West German talking car movies, rock bands versus monster movies, broken down school films, midget zombie and midget spy flicks, guys in gorilla suit movies, even old TV commercials, inappropriate cartoons, drive-in snack bar ads, and worse... Well, we like to say they're not bad movies, just misunderstood. Stay up late with Miss Mittens, your host, Mr. Lobo, and a revolving door of special guests, fellow horror movie hosts, robot monsters, and lovely real seven girls for a late night TV slumber party that we call Cinema Insomnia. You can watch us on channel OSI 74 for Roku. We even have some episodes on Amazon and Alpha Video DVD. You may never get a good night's sleep again. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast. It's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd whose name Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
Well, one thing I did want to touch upon is uh, Jack Beauregard, of course, as you mentioned, is played by Henry Fonda. We're going to talk about him more in depth when we cover Once Upon a Time in the West, which is his other great uh, spaghetti western. But of course, he's a legendary Hollywood actor. He's part of a Hollywood family. You know, his kids are Jane Fonda and the late, great Peter Fonda. And uh, Henry Fonda's famous for, of course, 12 Angry Men, On Golden Pond, Grapes of Wrath, and just so many great films. So I, I, we'll talk about his career in depth at a, on a later episode, but I, I just wanted to say he was really good here. I totally believed that he was this aging gunslinger. He kind, he kind of blew off Terrence uh, the, in the same way that Bud Spencer tries to blow him off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and again, you know, like you said, there's a lot of parallels to Day of Anger. Yes. Except, you know, Lee Van Cleef was a real jerk at the end. Yeah. But now that you mentioned it, it reminded me earlier, I was thinking, I one thing that I almost, that was almost going to make me not like this movie is when they're on the train and he's like, and he's like, oh, you defeated them. And, you know, and what's his name? Fonda's like, well, how am I going to get out of this? And he goes, there's only one way. You got to die. And I was like, no, don't tell me he's going to fucking kill him. I'm like, he's going to turn Did you poison my beans? Yeah. <laughs> the or even trick in the book. Yeah. And then they go to do the, the, the what do you call it, the duel in the street. And I'm like, no. I'm like, it can't be. But then when he shot him, like you said, there was no blood. And Fun is kind of looking down. And I'm, I'm thinking, I swear, I mean, you can't really see the bullet, but it felt like it passed between his arm and his body. Uh, remember what he said about hanging between a, by a thread? Yeah, and he he uh, took his uh, his coat and kind of like attached it to like a button on the outside to hold up to so he could get to his gun. Right, right. He shot through that. Okay, that's what I noticed because it the the coat was down. Unless it's a continuity error, like I couldn't imagine him being shot anywhere else. No, I think you're right because my subconscious must have caught that because I knew that the bullet went through there, but I I didn't realize how. And I watched the movie twice. <laughs> You know, it would have been it. way more awkward if there had been somebody standing behind him and, like, that guy just, like, keels over dead. He's <laughs> <laughs> crossing the street. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, nuts. I didn't mean to do that. But Crap. I was I was very worried that was going to go in Day of Anger territory, and I'm glad it didn't. I'm glad it was, it was all a, a ruse. So I would assume then that... Uh, when they cut away from the two of them on the train, they had the conversation, and Terrence Hill was like, "Okay, look at this is what we're going to do," you know, and he explains the whole plan to him. Yeah, and I, I thought that was pretty good. I, I just I liked this a lot. Um, I thought Fonda was really good as uh, as a as an aging gunslinger. Yeah, he's no Lee Van Cleef, but I mean, who the fuck is? Right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I thought he did uh, a really good job. He portrayed the character uh very convincingly yeah i mean i i think he uh he fit the role really well like i couldn't i don't think i could imagine anybody else in that role and i do as much as i love having bud spencer around as well i'm kind of glad he wasn't in this because it just it wouldn't have fit i mean some of his fight scenes would have been pretty funny especially this being a comedy and all but i think it works well with just uh terrence hill by himself in this one I agree. I agree with that. There was a lot of um, turmoil on the set, too. I mean, first of all, well, this is not really a turmoil thing, but 80% of the film was actually shot in America, which was unusual for a Leone production. But there's 
controversy over how much of the film Leone did step in and shoot. I guess there was one point where Valeri had like an ear infection or something. And I think basically he shot the the shooting the glass scene in the bar and the urinal scene, which went on way too long. And yeah. um, I think he may have been credited as shooting the, the, the scene with the funhouse mirrors, too. That I thought was pretty was pretty fun. Like that was yeah. a pretty interesting scene. I think that uh, that was really cool. I like the fact that they, uh, you know, use all the, the 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 trickery. You know, again, just shows that these guys, you know, they're outgunned and they're they're outnumbered, but they're smart and they, you know, it. it like I said, I called them earlier, wily. Yeah, um, yeah. They knew what they were doing and they knew that they were. Uh, you know, they, they came up with a plan because they knew that these guys, you know, either weren't smart or weren't going to you know, really consider the consequences of all their actions as they rushed in to get Beauregard and, and Terrence. Right. And now the, the scene with the, with the Wild Bunch heading towards Beauregard, I thought and it couldn't have happened because they, first of all, the Wild Bunch comes into town and they start stuffing dynamite in there or getting, having dynamite stuffed in their saddlebags. And I'm like, okay, that's going to come back later on. You know that's going to come back. But then when Fonda sees the glint of the, the shiny parts of their saddles and the saddlebags, I was thinking, oh, uh, Terrence Hill went and shined them all. And that's how, you know, so he knew that that was going to help. Fonda. And I was like, wait a minute, there's no way because those guys came to town, took their dynamite, and left. <laughs> yeah, see, I wasn't I wasn't 100% sure with that, but I remember Terrence having, like, the same the same bag, you know, the same saddle, you know, markings. So, yes. I think that was done intentionally. So, I think that's why they were after Terrence the whole time because he had robbed them or done something, probably similar to, uh, Call me Trinity sixty one times, um, <laughs> where he uh, he had done something. He had like got the drop on a couple of guys and like got the better of them. Took their horses and their beans because that's what he does. Um, <laughs> he, uh, you know, they'd just been looking for this guy. They're like, who got you know? Who took your stuff? Nobody. What do you mean nobody? Where is it then? Nobody took it. Right. What's the problem? Like that would have been like you know some sort of you know Western Abbott and Costello shit right there. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but I think that's why they're after him. And then knowing that because I don't, there's no way they saw him helping Beauregard at any point. Right. Like they certainly didn't see him on the train. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like because they never got close enough. <laughs> So I think, uh, I don't know if there's a sequel to this, but there might be more to that story than we know. There could be. I don't believe there is, but, um, you know, if someone followed up on it, we'll have to find out. But I, when they put the dynamite in the saddlebags, I was so hoping to see someone shoot one of those things. And man, did that pay off in spades. <laughs> that whole sequence was phenomenal. I just, I feel bad for the horses. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's like all these horses blowing up. Like, you could tell it's not that graphic of a film because there would have been horse chunks going every which way. Right. <laughs> but you, through the whole film, you're, you're wondering, you know, how the hell is he going to take on 150 guys? Is it metaphorical or, you know, what's he going to do? And then when it came down to it, I was like, Oh, that's what he, that's what he's going to do. When you saw him loading the rifle, I'm like, here we go. 
And they they were tasteful about it, though. I, I hope no horses got hurt on that. I'm sure some did. But they stopped showing you actual explosions and then showed you, like, what looked to be, like, photographs of it. Mm-hmm. Or artist interpretations of what was going on. I, th- you know what I was waiting for? I w- because, you know, I, I, like I said, I don't have experience with a ton of uh, Westerns, but I was waiting for, because there was such heavy security on the train, I was waiting for Terrence Hill to come by and, you know, on the back of the train, just kind of like flip open the last car. And because it's not like you have to steer the train, like right. it's not going to go anywhere, <laughs> flip open the back car and there's a goddamn Gatling gun. Like at the end of uh, Magnificent Seven, and he just mows down everybody as he's going down the track, lined up and just mows everybody down. And it's like that's the end of that. That's hilarious. See, I thought when the cop, when the uh, whatever the guards that were guarding the train went after it in fast motion, I thought they were going to catch up to the train and f- end up fighting the hundred and fifty. Yeah, I was kind of surprised they didn't catch up with the train uh, to yeah. be to be because they were right there, right, and then. They must have just given up, and no one has a horse, apparently. Right. <laughs> Again, it's not like it's tough to follow them. They're on this track. You know, it's not like, oh, they came to an intersection. We don't know if they went left or right. It's like, nope. It's like right. why I don't feel bad. It's like, oh, this guy got hit by a train. It's like, well, that's his own goddamn fault. It's not like the train can come get you. Right. Like, oh, this man was eaten by a bear. Oh, what was he doing when he got eaten by a bear? Well, he was walking into this cave in the woods. It's like, well, that's his own goddamn fault. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like the people that complain, oh, the shark attacked me. It's like, well, if a bucket of fried chicken skateboarded across your living room, what would you do? <laughs> that's like, <so> true. <laughs> you don't want to get attacked. Don't. <laughs> Like, I remember being, again, this is off topic a little bit, but I remember being at the Cape a few years ago, and this was mid-September, so it's still warm enough with tons of seals everywhere, and there's a guy in a goddamn wetsuit swimming around with the seals, and I'm like, why don't you just douse yourself in steak sauce and, like, (laughs) ring the goddamn dinner bell? Like... That's so true. It's like, what are you, you, uh, sharks eat seals. I know. I'll wear my seal costume when I go swimming. <laughs> it's like, what? what? Oh, my God. Well, it's cold in the water. It's like, you know there's <laughs> hotels everywhere with pools. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, you got to get the... I can't pee in the pools. You're right. <laughs> Oh man, there were so many funny, funny little scenes in this movie. Like, of course, we got another circus with the uh, the midget on the stilts. That was a hilarious scene. Well, I mean, you, you you have to have some sort of traveling carnival to. <laughs> I did, I did like the uh, the pie throwing thing when he smashed the guy in the face. Yes, and he's like. Because they had the the two black guys that everybody was throwing eggs and pies and shit at. Yeah, and. He picks up his thing and part of the table right. <laughs> and smashes the guy in the face with it. And he and he goes up to him and says exactly what he said. He goes, oh, isn't this is the fun part. This is what what makes it fun. Right. Yeah. The guy's like all bloody and like pulling teeth out of his mouth. <laughs> and he's like, that son of a bitch. I was expecting that guy to show up. Oh, geez. See, that's another thing that I like about these films and a lot of these spaghetti westerns, especially ones with Terrence Hill in them, and we've seen this a lot, is that anytime there are uh, minorities, generally it's it's black folks, 
who are being mistreated in the way that they would have been mistreated at the time and right to be honest still are you know maybe not to that extreme like you won't see someone at a traveling carnival you know, <laughs> like you won't see that now but anyways not to get too far into that rabbit hole um <laughs> he always stands up for them he always helps them and removes them from that situation right and in you know many cases you know like we saw in uh, life gamble they end up coming and, and aiding him down the road or um what was the other one? Life Gamble and the one right before that we watched, or the one right oh, after it. Life Gamble was the Shaw Brothers movie. Um, you're thinking of Boot Hill? Boot Hill, yeah, the the, the casino one. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Oh, Ace's High was the casino one. Ace High, yes, yeah. Yes. So those those two where he was you know, being helped out. Uh, yeah, because Life Gamble is what we paired it with. That's, right. Um, like he's always, he's, uh, he's always on the side of good. Even yes. when he's trying to be bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, again, fixing the wagons and right. <laughs> giving money for the baby. Those are the strangest robbers I ever seen. I will say though, um Trinity Trinity definitely uh lets his gun do the thinking, we'll say. That's true. Yeah. That's yes. a good point. Uh whether he's fighting for his life or looking for a wife. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I t- totally off the top of my head. <laughs> great. But yeah, one of his guns always does the thinking for him. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Oh, what's, yeah. The, what's the line from uh, from uh, Full Metal Jacket? This is my rifle. This is my gun. This is for fighting. This is for fun. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's uh, that's that's Trinity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh man, there were so many good running gags in this movie too. Like, um, well, first of all, when he tosses the the basket out of the bar and he blows up those three guys, and the poor—I don't know if he was black or Mexican or what—but the poor guy is standing there holding the roof up by himself, and then Trinity pretends to pull his gun on them, and they all put their hands up and end up touching the roof, and so the other guy can let go, and they're stuck holding the roof up. And then he quotes the the Bible at him. Yeah. Uh, that one was yeah, and then they did it again later. Yeah, he he shoots the rope that was holding the the door up, and like they the garage end up door. <laughs> like I don't get oh. why they didn't just put it down. Like why do you have to stand there holding that? Why can't you put it down? What? Well, the, the second time they thought he was sitting behind them, but then yeah. someone came up and pointed out that he wasn't there. <laughs> it's like yeah, he's been gone for a while now. Like <laughs> you guys are dumb. One thing I thought was gross, though, was when he first throws the basket out and it explodes, the big cloud of dust from the explosion comes into the saloon over him because he's standing right in front of the saloon doors, eating the beans out of the pan, and they get covered in that dust. And then just, he just, just continues just to eat the it's beans. Just extra flavor. Yeah, he, he licks the pan clean and then throws it, and some lady's screaming. He's like, oh, you don't have to wash it now. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what he... That dude loves his beans. Like even at the end when oh the, he's cooking the beans in the 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 uh the engine of the train. Right. And he pulls it so it's, you know, he's got to take it out with, you know, this, you know, with a shovel and like it's incredibly hot cuz it's a cast iron pan. Right. And he just starts shoveling beans in his face. And it's just like, <laughs> "Oh, like this is so hot, I can't even wrap a towel around it to reach in and get it out." <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. But right. I'm just going to start eating these beans. It's like, <laughs> oh, I mean, like, I hope the beans were at least hot when he did these scenes. Because you ever try eating cold beans? No, it's I don't like, like beans. <laughs> might as well, might as well be eating bullets. Oh, gross! <laughs> and they're all mushy and like, oh, it's it's the worst. Oh, disgusting. Ah, uh, yeah, I don't like beans at all. <laughs> See, I do. I I like uh, refried beans. I'll get refried beans with uh, refried beans. I like more, and you know, you know, baked beans and stuff like that. I like you know with the molasses and brown sugar and whatnot. But uh, that's not what he was eating. He was no. just like, I have these beans. I don't know where he had the beans to make. Right. <laughs> I like, was thinking the same thing. Because like, it didn't look like he had much when he went into the when he went into the urinal there. Right. And was like really freaking that dude out. It, it must have been the um, the train driver's um, beans because he also had the pan, obviously, too. And um, well, he didn't have it with him. I mean, that is, like, his signature move is stealing people's beans. Right. <laughs> like. Or apples from two-year-olds. Oh, yeah. Twice he stole an apple. Yeah. <laughs> oh, stole the apple twice. I oh, can't believe yeah. he stole it from the little two-year-old, though, and the mother didn't even notice. And he's like, shh. Yeah. <laughs> like, the kid knows what you're doing. I mean, at least he did give it back, even though he had pretty much eaten it. <laughs> yeah, he gave him back the core. Like, he ate that shit quick. Like, that's the other thing. He's always eating really fast. Yeah, yeah. Like, we see every time he's eating beans, he shovels them in like someone's trying to take them from him. Right. Like, maybe it's like they're not good and he's just trying to, he just needs them for sustenance. So he's just like pounding them down as fast as possible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And one thing his character does that Trinity never did was he's always looking at himself in his little pocket mirror, mm-hmm. which well, I mean, he did that, use to advantage. Yeah, I was gonna say that he that was uh, that was one of his uh, tricks of his trade. You know, I I was just thinking what we need to do if we ever do interview uh, Terrence Hill, ask him if he really does like beans or like if he <laughs> like he's like to this day I can't eat beans anymore. I right. ate beans thousands of times. We did sixty takes. In the train, <laughs> and I, I couldn't do it anymore. It reminds me of the, uh, the. Uh, uh, there's a scene in the upcoming um, Suicide Squad film where John Cena's character is eating like an empanada or something, and he's supposed to just take a bite out of it, but he's like, "No, I'm going to eat the whole thing." And they ended up shooting the scene 32 times. So he had to eat 32 empanadas. Are those hot? Oh, I don't know. But I, you know, think about like the size of a Hot Pocket. Could you eat 32 Hot oh. Pockets? <laughs> I don't know what an empanada sitting? is. So. <laughs> like, I can't, and I'm a big dude. Like, I weigh close to 300 pounds, and I'm not eating 32 empanadas. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. I mean, I don't eat Mexican food, so that's probably why. <laughs> Well, it's like a, it's, it might have been an enchilada, but like, you know, it's very, like, you know, a tortilla stuffed with meat and cheese. Oh, okay. You know, but I, I'm not sure exactly what, uh, what the difference is between, you know, an empanada and a, and a enchilada <laughs> or a burrito, but like, that's what he's eating. Oh and it's God. like, instead of taking just the one bite, he had to 32. eat 32 of them. Oh my God. Like there I could a- eat 32 beans. Like... <laughs> That's not difficult. That's like four four uh, forkfuls. 
But that's so funny. I don't think I could eat. You know, like, could I eat thirty hot dogs? Probably not. <laughs> Even without the bun. Oh man, yeah, yeah, it would be interesting. So I did like the um, his use of the swinging dummy to take out the bad guys. I thought that was. Pretty oh funny. yeah, the the one that was uh, slapping people. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that was foreshadowed because he used that on somebody earlier in the film. Yeah, so that was cool. And I love the music. The Marconi theme I thought was really good, although it didn't necessarily need the Ride of the Valkyries in it to make it work. But Repeatedly? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which, again, that sort of, I felt that that added to the cartoonishness of, of certain aspects of the film. I'm going to interject and tell you another thing that added to the cartoonish nature of the film is that I watched it on one and a half speed. <laughs> so everything was turned up to 11 uh, when it comes to that if you blinked the um the, the train guards would have disappeared oh, so i played it at one and a half speed so instead of being two hours it was like an 80 minute you know 90 minute film that's hilarious you do that on prime no, I did it on the on because I, I watch it on my computer because my oh, new oh, okay. my new computer I got a nice little uh, I got a Lenovo computer and then I got yeah. a uh, a USB dock so I was able to plug in a second monitor. Oh, nice! So I had it playing on the second monitor while I was doing some uh, you know looking up notes and doing research on the the laptop. I have it playing on the monitor. Nice. Yeah, I I can't watch things in one and a half speed. I have to watch it at regular speed. <laughs> It always depends on what I'm doing, like what else is going on in the, uh, you know, in, in my day. Like, okay, right. I have something to do in two hours. I need to watch this movie. Let me get this done in an hour and a half. So I still have time to like finish getting ready or, you know, run to the bathroom. Or oh, that's true. Yeah. Have something to eat. So I like having that option. That's true. That's true. I can't do double speed. That's too much. One and a half is just fine because they give you the option. You can do it at, you know, a quarter speed. So if you have eight hours to watch one movie, you can do that. <laughs> um, you know, one and a one, one and a quarter, one and a half, one and three quarters, two. Double speed is too much. 1.75, maybe if I'm in a real rush, but one and a half is usually what I do because I can't always dedicate two hours to a film. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So uh, one of the lines that uh, nobody has is um, towards the end, he's like, my, my, how modern the old folks are becoming. And I just thought that was a great way of sort of summing up the movie. You know, the, the, it is, again, a deconstruction of the Spaghetti Western. It's It was sort of the end, I guess. Not really, because there was still plenty more to come. But I think of, you know, in Sergio Leone's mind and the people who made this movie, this was like, they couldn't do any more. This was, you know, as good as it was going to get. And by making it a comedy and having all these references like Sam Peckinpah and stuff in it, they were trying to give the, the, the genre a send-off, even though it would continue for a few years more. Self-referential and self-deprecating, I think, is the uh, the real way that, you know, these these folks like we have to close this genre out we have to you know go out like we could try to make something like amazing but all of our best work is you know 5 10 15 years ago we've kind of bled this dry what else can we do 
Right. You know, and maybe they were hoping for, you know, like a renaissance or a, uh, I mean, I just thought of another Western I saw, Blazing Saddles. Oh, know, there you speaking, go. Yeah. Speaking of comedy, uh, <laughs> comedy Westerns. Come back with a shitload of dimes. Um, <laughs> Such a great movie. There's a way to, you know, go out with a little bit of dignity. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, as opposed to just, you know, trying to squeeze out as much as you possibly can. You know, it's like a, a like a boxer or, you know, another athlete who thinks that they still have it and they were once great, you know, and they come back and they just look awful and all you do is you just look at them and you just you kind of feel bad knowing what they used to be seeing what they are now it's yeah. just not the same and you're you know you're a little you're a little upset you're a little sad and you know it's like this isn't how i wanted to remember these guys yeah exactly exactly so final thoughts on my name is nobody i like it uh, it's hard to talk about it using the character's name because you're like, nobody had this line. It's like, yes, they did. I remember it. <laughs> I remember him saying this. No, yeah. nobody said it. Yes, they did. You know, again, and you devolve into Abbott and Costello. Um, no, this one was a lot of fun. Like I said, I, I really liked uh, Henry Fonda. I liked him as uh, as the aging gunslinger. I think he played it really well. I think um, Terrence Hill, again, you know, knocked it out of the park with what he was given. I liked the comedy, but I didn't like the cartoony stuff. You know, again, when they really yeah. sped up what he was doing, you know, that kind of seemed almost Three Stooges-like to me. You right. know, or like you said, uh, you know, Charlie Chaplin-esque. But I, overall, I enjoyed the film. I really liked it. It's a, it's a fun Western. Uh, it's definitely one that if you've never seen a Western before... Um, like this isn't a bad one to start with. I mean, it's yep. not going to give you exactly what you're going to to see. But you know, like I said, with the um, Shaw Brothers films, with westerns, especially westerns where there's you know some sort of confrontation against you know insurmountable odds at the end, you will you will see like some sort of ridiculous plan that. You know, there's no way it should work, but luckily it does. Like, everything just happens to go in the hero's favor. And then, you know, somebody rides off into the sunset or, you know, somebody, you know, uh, you know, they, they get their revenge or, you know, what, whatever their their main goal is, they end up accomplishing it. You know, we see that with not only the, the fun house, but the train and, you know, the, the, the shootout at the end. And, you know, there's this, like... There's no way that one man can face down 150 people who fight like they're thousands on horseback, you know? Right, right. <laughs> but it works. It's not convoluted. Yep. It's not forced. It's not like he's standing there like Rambo and just like, you know, doing what I said. You know, they're driving the train and just <laughs> unloading with a Gatling gun on everybody as they ride down there because they're riding, you know, 150 across you know, all approaching him, you know, Genghis Khan style, so that everybody just approaches him and circles around. It's like, right. nope, he he's running down the, <laughs> dr driving the train down the train tracks and just shooting as they go along, and everybody's dead, and the end. Like, hooray, right. we did it. That's how it, but rather, <laughs> he's still, you know, Beauregard's still relying on his skills that he's, he's still got, but doesn't want to do this anymore. 
you know, and yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I, I, I uh, I'm a fan. I liked this one. Yeah, yeah, me too. I definitely loved it. Uh, I loved that it had Sergio Leone's stamp all over it, even though it wasn't a Leone film per se. I thought it was very engaging from beginning to end. I, I was totally engrossed in the story and what was going on, and it didn't meander at all. I thought, you know, every scene worked nicely into the next scene. And uh, it was visually, it wasn't visually stunning as some maybe that we've, you know, some of the scenes in films that we've talked about or to come. But it was very visually nice to look at, especially when they were riding through the White Sands, which was, um, they actually shot that in America. And uh, the shootouts, great fun. Uh, the comedy, like you said, I agree with you too on that. The, um, the, the fast motion Chaplin-esque stuff didn't really do it for me. But the little touches, the little running gags here and there, and, you know, of course, Terrence Hill's, just his naivete that he brings to the character in the same way he brought to Trinity, I just I just love that. I love that character, and that's why I kind of like to pretend that maybe it is some kind of continuation, because I just enjoy that character he's, he plays. Um, I highly recommend it. It is on Amazon Prime as of this recording. And again, we have no affiliation with Amazon, but if you want to watch it, check it out. Hopefully you've watched it first. We did put the spoiler disclaimer at the beginning of the show, and we have obviously spoiled the shit out of this movie, but um, it is 40 years old, so. <laughs> More than that. It came out yeah. in the mid to late 1900s. Oh, there you go. <laughs> the latter half of the 20th century. Yes. Well, folks, that is all the time we have for The East Meets the West today. You can check out more episodes as well as our sister show, the uh, Then Is Now podcast, in which we discuss all the cool stuff you may have missed out on. You can check that out at our website, havenpodcasts.com. And folks, don't forget The East Meets the West is also part of the Dorkening podcast as well. So don't forget to check out all the great shows there at thedorkening.com. And as a result of us being brought to you on the Dorkening Network, we are sponsored by Deadly Grounds Coffee. Once you go deadly, you don't go back. Uh, you can find me at uh, throwdownthursdaypodcast.com uh, for lots of uh, our latest episodes, articles, uh, all, some, all, all kinds of awesome news. Uh, you can also find me on the uh, Throwdown Thursday Facebook group, the Loudest Sports Show Facebook group, and the Loudest Sports Show uh, podcast. Both uh, Throwdown Thursday and the Loudest Sports Show are found on Spotify, uh, Amazon, uh, iTunes, Google Play, all the, all the places you find podcasts. You can also find me on the Facebook group Major Sports Drops, where we raffle off all kinds of amazing sports memorabilia. And uh, folks, send us your thoughts on today's episode at the East Meets the West 42 at gmail.com. And you can check out our East Meets the West YouTube page at youtube.com slash user slash Uncle Death One. And you'll find all of our podcasts there plus other fun stuff. And be sure to not only hit the subscribe button, but also share it with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Yeah, do it. Yeah, also please go to uh, wherever you download your podcast. Leave us a great review so more people can find the show. We don't even start getting noticed until there's at least 15 reviews. So iTunes, Google Play, Pinecast, wherever you get your uh, stuff. Spotify. Uh, plus, that way you don't miss a single episode. Exactly, exactly. So folks, join us once again on our next episode of The East Meets the West. Please.
Podcast The West is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. All clips played on the show are property of their copyright holders. All other material is copyright Jupiter Media. shows like the one you just heard check out the dorkening podcast network at the dorkening.com that's your that's your cue oh yeah that's my my cue and i was so good that i didn't bring it up earlier <laughs> oh, you fucking clown well, let me close that uh well let me pull this up you're wanted on set, Mr. Ray Hall. Yeah, right? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs>